Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Time to grab my coffee. Good morning, everyone. It is 6 a.m. Eastern. We are so happy to have Phil back. How are you doing? I'm good. This is a big day for you. Oh, it's a big day. Do you want to tell them why? Yeah. Preschool graduation. Um, You know, you're a couple of days behind me. I already had my preschool and a kindergarten graduation, so I'm glad. I need to have a couple more kids to catch up with where you're at. I mean, let's (laughs) hang out for a little bit first, and then we can go down that path. Phil's right. I got to take off a little bit early today because my son is graduating from preschool. Congratulations. Got Sarah Seidner coming to sit by your side, but we've got a few hours before that happens and a lot of news. So let's get started for five things to know for this Wednesday, June 7th. New York and Detroit are now in the top three on the list for the world's worst air pollution right now. As smoke from a Canadian wildfire makes skies hazy in the Midwest and right here along the East Coast, you're looking at live pictures of a very smoky sunrise here in New York City. And a big development in the federal investigation into former President Trump. His last chief of staff, Mark Meadows, testified before a federal grand jury. We don't know if he was asked about the attempts to overturn the 2020 election or about classified documents or both or anything else for that matter. But we'll be posted on that. Meanwhile, Trump's former vice president, Mike Pence, he's officially in the race. He released a video moments ago announcing he'll take on his old boss in that race for the White House. And he's not the only Republican throwing his hat in the ring today. That's right. A high school graduation, though, tragically becomes the scene of a mass shooting In Virginia, a gunman opened fire as hundreds of people stood outside the ceremony, some in their caps and gowns, killing two people and wounding five more. And breaking overnight, the Pope is in the hospital, set to undergo abdominal surgery. The Vatican says he'll stay hospitalized for several days. What we're learning about his condition, seen in this morning, starts right now. So I went on a run, I'm in this run club Tuesday nights, and it was so hard to breathe. The air was so thick and full of smoke. I have so many questions about your run club on Tuesday nights. Uh, But yes, it is kind of surreal when you walk outside. It is surreal. And the way just that the sun looked with all the haze over it. This is the morning view, folks. This is what you're looking at. Look at New York City, all up and down the East Coast and Midwest, feeling the effect of the Canadian wildfire and the smoke pouring down, blanketing American cities across the Northeast and the Midwest. New York City right there, tens of millions of you uh, and tens of millions of Americans from Minnesota down in North Carolina this morning. They're really at risk of breathing what is unhealthy air. Earlier this morning, New York City had the worst air quality of any major city in the world. It beat out Delhi, India, a city that is notorious for severe toxic smog. Detroit also in the top five. This is what it looked like at the Yankees game last night. You can see the reddish-brown sky over the stadium there. And here's the Statue of Liberty shrouded in a thick haze. We've got team coverage this morning. Let's start off with meteorologist Eric Van Dam tracking all of it. Also, we've got our national correspondent Athena Jones here in Manhattan with a mask, given how bad it is outside. Athena, the mayor's telling people to stay inside as much as they can. Is that right? 
Good morning, Poppy. That's right. It's because of the air quality reaching what officials called a very unhealthy level overnight. As you mentioned, I'm wearing a mask to protect myself. And you can just get a look at the city. That's actually our building there among those buildings behind us. You can still see the haze this morning. Uh, and as you mentioned, this smoke from more than 100 wildfires in Canada isn't just affecting New York City. You mentioned Detroit. It's also stretching across large parts of the Northeast all the way down to Raleigh, North Carolina. I can smell it and feel it, yeah. People in New York City masking up again, not because of COVID, but due to harmful smoke wafting into the city. Right now, New York City is among the top five most air-polluted cities in the world. At one point, the air quality index soared past 200 Tuesday night, according to New York City Mayor Eric Adams. That's a very unhealthy level. The poor air quality is caused by more than 150 active wildfires burning in Canada. The smoke from those fires creating a haze for millions. It should be super crowded. Everybody should be trying to get the good air, but it's not crowded. That's, that tells you something, right? More than 40 million people across the Northeast, Midwest, and Mid-Atlantic are under air quality alerts. Affecting areas around Boston, shrouding Pittsburgh in smoke, while leaving Hartford, Connecticut under dense haze and smoke lingering over New Jersey. You can see the haze over the stadium. The ominous skies clouded the start of the game at Yankee Stadium. But the haze did not stop all New Yorkers from venturing outside on Tuesday. I'm not just going to stay in the house because of air quality. It is a little hazy, but they say, you know, you shouldn't do strenuous activity. Or, But I feel like I can go for a run right now. You know, I know I shouldn't, maybe. Sports and family medicine physician Tyler Wheeler warns, even if you can't see the smoke, it can still cause harm. The particle sizes are really very small, uh, which allows them to penetrate deeply into the lung tissue. So what the smoke generally does to the lungs, the thought is that it increases inflammation into the lungs. At least 10 school districts in central New York have canceled outdoor activities due to poor air quality which is not expected to improve in the coming days, as a cold front will likely push more smoke south and east into the U.S. Children who are at higher risk um, of lung conditions, it certainly would be appropriate to minimize their exposure to the outdoor air. Now, safety is an issue because wildfire smoke contains particulate matter. This is among the tiniest and most dangerous of pollutants. This is the kind of stuff you can breathe deeply into your lungs. It can get into the bloodstream and it's linked to health problems like asthma, heart disease, respiratory illnesses. We're going to be watching out for a press conference from New York City Mayor Eric Adams a few hours from now to get an update on what they expect and how long they expect that this, this situation to last. Yeah. Poppy? Okay, Athena, thank you. Well, for. Thank you for the reporting, and please keep us posted as we hear more from, from the mayor. And you've seen the skylines in New York. Here's a look at the hazy skylines in Philadelphia, Baltimore, Charlotte, North Carolina, all across this part of the country. Derek Van Dam is with us now. And Derek, how much longer will this smoke, this smog, fill the skies in cities across the U.S.? Yeah, Phil, I think we've got several more hours, if not another day, of seeing more scenes just like this playing out in the National Mall. Looks like, to me, a dystopian climate change movie playing out in real time. Definitely the fingerprints, fingerprints of climate change written all over this story. And we could see this wall of smoke literally traveling across Lake Erie yesterday as it kind of coalesced in that area, eventually drifting south and impacting the major metropolitans of the East Coast, some of the most populated areas. You can see the unhealthy and very unhealthy uh, red and magenta colored dots. This is a forecast for the near 
near surface smoke and you can see yet another plume starting to develop late tonight that will drift south from Buffalo and impact the nation's capital New York not only the air quality but also the visibility now keep in mind this is important perspective we are well underway within our burn season within Canada but you can see in 2023 we have already reached what the five past top seasons in terms of acres burned in Canada so far and we haven't even gotten into the heart of the season just yet in Canada. Back to That's you. It's wild. Derek Van Dam, thanks so much for your reporting. Former Trump White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows has testified, now we've learned, before a federal grand jury. This is part of the special counsel Jack Smith's ongoing probe. What is not clear this morning is whether Meadows gave testimony regarding former President Trump's handling of classified documents or his attempts to overturn the results of the 2020 election or both. Trump tried to block Meadows' testimony, but a judge rejected his claims of executive privilege. Let's learn a lot more about this with our senior justice correspondent, Evan Perez. He joins us now. Okay, let's begin with Meadows, obviously a critical witness, because who knows more than the man who's always around the man in the White House? I, we don't know if Jack Smith wanted to know about the classified documents over trying to overturn the election or both, right? Right. We don't know, uh, Poppy. And good morning, by the way. Good morning. Uh, the, the, uh, the fact is that, you know, based on what we've seen with other witnesses, uh, prosecutors typically bring in uh, uh, witnesses and ask them about both matters. So that's what we expect would have happened here, because, uh, as you pointed out, uh, Mark Meadows is arguably the biggest witness in both of these investigations. He was there uh, when the former president was uh, formulating his effort to try to stay in office despite losing the election. He was involved in uh, trying to uh, tell members of Congress that there was this, F this plan. You saw some of his text messages from the January 6th committee uh, investigation where he outlined the plan they ended up taking, which was to try to get states to send alternate electors and try to make sure that the former president could remain in office. We also know that obviously he played a key role in the, the fact that prosecutors have this recording of Trump at uh, Bedminster. This is something that, uh, that we know his uh, biographers, people were working on his biography, recorded as the former president was waving a document and acknowledged it, acknowledged the fact that he believed it was still classified. Again, that undercuts the former president's claim that he declassified everything. Uh, so, you know, for, for, for the, the, both of these investigations, Mark Meadows is witness number one. You know, Evan, one of the things, and I think you're very keenly aware of this, in Washington there has long been kind of a parlor game going on about whether or not he might be cooperating, yeah. whether or not, how, what's his involvement here? Obviously, we now have the news of the testimony. One of the questions, though, I've always had is, does he, does Mark Meadows actually have any of his own possible legal exposure at this time? A absolutely, Phil. I mean, the fact is that he was... Uh, very, very central to the effort to try to pressure state officials, again, to try to overturn their own election results. We know that he was on the phone with officials in Georgia, and that's one reason why he was subpoenaed in the state of Georgia to testify in their uh, state investigation. He showed up and pleaded the fifth. Uh, now, we have a statement from his lawyer, uh, which I think will probably make the hairs on the necks of, of Trump team uh, stand, frankly, because mm. I think it's very ominous. Uh, he doesn't confirm that Meadows testified uh, to the grand jury, but he says this. He says uh, Mark Meadows has testified before the—I'm uh, sorry. He says Mark Meadows has maintained a commitment to tell the truth where he has a legal obligation to do so. And again, if you're the Trump team, those are the words that you've suspected— uh, we know that they've long suspected, uh, and it doesn't sound pretty. It doesn't sound very good to them.
Right. There's also a witness in the documents probe in Florida today. So this this week we learned right. about another grand jury in Jack Smith's probe, not in the nation's capital, but in Florida. And do we know who will speak to the grand jury today? I guess we don't know who. We, we know it's somebody very close to the former president who's been working with him down in, in, uh, in Florida. Uh, and uh, we know that this is a, it appears to be a very recent development. Uh, we know that, according to the New York Times, there have been a number of Secret Service witnesses who've been brought there. Uh, we don't know exactly why, after months of using a grand jury or grand juries in Washington, they've decided to use a grand jury in Florida. There are a number of reasons they could do that. But we do expect that witness to make an appearance in the coming hours. Bobby and Phil? You're going to have a lot on your plate today, Evan. <laughs> oh, absolutely. It's like every day for every Evan day. at this point. All week. Like seven I'm years. Here. All week. <laughs> All year. Thanks, buddy. Yeah. All right. Also new this morning, former Vice President Mike Pence has officially announced he's running for president. Just moments ago, the former Vice President released a new campaign video declaring he's jumping into that very crowded Republican field. We can turn this country around. But different times call for different leadership. Today, our party and our country need a leader that will appeal, as Lincoln said, to the better angels of our nature. I have long believed to whom much is given, much will be required. My family and I have been blessed beyond measure with opportunities to serve this nation, and it'd be easy to stay on the sidelines. But that's not how I was raised. That's why today, before God and my family, I'm announcing I'm running for President of the United States. CNN's Kyung Law joins us now from Ankeny, Iowa, beautiful Ankeny, Iowa. Kyung, the former vice president is set to make his first official campaign stop there in just a few hours. What are we expecting? Um, what we're expecting to hear, the campaign says, is really a layout of how the vice president, the former vice president, views is the path forward for the Republican Party. He lays out a conservative vision. We saw it in that launch video. But notably, he is recalling the days of Ronald Reagan and not naming the president he served with, Donald Trump. We can turn this country around. But different times call for different leadership. Breaking out on his own, former Vice President Mike Pence. Before God and my family, I'm announcing I'm running for President of the United States. In that declaration, Pence sets up a historic battle with Donald Trump. Former running mates on the Republican ticket are now running against each other, something the American voter has rarely ever witnessed. I'm deeply humbled as your vice president. And this challenge comes from a lieutenant who served Trump with visible loyalty. Until January 6th. The insurrectionists, fueled by Trump's election lies, called for Pence's execution. presiding over the ceremonial certification of the election. It began their political divorce. President Trump is wrong. I had no right to overturn the election. In his campaign, Pence will tout the conservative ideals of Ronald Reagan, his decades of experience as a member of Congress, Indiana governor and vice president, as well as Trump era policies without Trump. Pence's former boss, the clear front runner and poll said ahead of Pence's announcement, Good luck. We had a very strong, nice relationship until the very end. I wish you would have uh, put the the votes back to the legislatures and uh, legislators also. Trump is the pace setter for the entire Republican field, which continues to grow. North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum expects to announce today. Anger, yelling, infighting, 
that's not going to cut it anymore. Let's get things done. And former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, who jumped into the race yesterday. I am going out there to take out Donald Trump, but here's why. I want to win. And I don't want him to win. A very big first day lies ahead for the former vice president after this kickoff rally here in Ankeny, Iowa. He will be spending the evening at a CNN town hall. Phil? Kyung La, thanks so much. Great reporting as always. And as Kyung mentioned, tonight, one of the best in the business, Dana Bash, will moderate a CNN Republican presidential town hall with former vice president Mike Pence. You can watch it here and only here tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern. And next Monday, Anderson Cooper will host a town hall with Chris Christie. That will air at 8 p.m. Eastern. Yeah, and Chris Christie will join Jake, Jake Tapper, live on the lead today, 4 p.m. Eastern. That'll be a great conversation. So we've got clearly a lot ahead, but also new this morning, uh, all eyes on Pope Francis. He is back in the hospital this morning undergoing surgery. We'll have the latest on his condition and what the Vatican is saying about his health. And happening now, Prince Harry is back in court for his historic battle with British tabloids accusing them of hacking his phone. We'll take you live to London ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. And just moments ago, we learned that the Vatican says Pope Francis will undergo abdominal surgery today. He is expected to remain in the hospital for quote, several days to recover. Now, it comes after he had a scheduled checkup at the same hospital in Rome Tuesday. The 86-year-old pontiff has faced a series of health issues in recent years. He's been using a cane and a wheelchair due to a persistent knee problem. But the Pope has also been keeping a busy schedule. He's expected to visit Portugal and Mongolia in August. Sending all good thoughts to him. And this morning, water levels are getting extremely low for the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. Remember, we talked a lot about this yesterday and the concern because that power plant, of course, relies on water emptying from the collapsed dam in Ukraine. The breach forced mass evacuations and sparked fears of widespread environmental devastation in the Kherson region. And officials say more than 1,400 people have been evacuated from their homes. Some residents desperately trying to save their belongings from water levels near the ceiling. Ukraine and Russia accusing each other of blowing up this dam as U.S. and Western officials say they are seeing signs of Ukraine's highly anticipated counteroffensive beginning. Our Fred Plankton joins us live in Kherson, Ukraine with more. A lot to get to. What can you tell us about, I mean, we see the water behind you, the boats, they're trying to evacuate people, obviously. Yeah, they're, they're trying to evacuate people, Poppy, and they have been evacuating people throughout the entire night here in Harrison. You can see if we look over there, there's a bunch of boats that are getting ready. A crew's actually getting ready to head out right now. And uh, the authorities here are saying that's been going on nonstop because the water levels have been rising so fast that a lot of people were not able to get out of their houses after that catastrophic break of that dam that is so important here in this region. Here's what we're learning. Masses of water gushing from the gaping hole in the destroyed Novokarkovka Dam in Russian-controlled territory here in south Ukraine. Massive flooding quickly inundating villages on both shores of the mighty Dnipro River, impacting areas controlled by Ukrainians and by the Russians. As you can see, there's a massive rescue effort going on here. The local authorities are using boats and also heavy trucks to get as many people out of the zone as they can. 65-year-old Nadezhda Chernyshova was stranded in her home with her cat Sonia for hours, fearing for her life. 
Now I'm not scared, she says, but there it was scary. Why, I ask? Because of the water. The water came and you don't know from where it comes and where it will go. The authorities here say they've evacuated hundreds of people throughout the day. At times, under Russian fire, the head of Kherson's military administration tells me. We have the water, he says. Mines, mines are floating to here, and this district is constantly being shelled. Two policemen were injured while evacuating people. Kiev blames Moscow for allegedly blowing up the dam, an angry Ukrainian president saying the Russians are trying to derail Ukraine's current battlefield gains. It was mined by the Russian occupiers, he says, and they blew it up. This once again demonstrates the cynicism with which Russia treats the people whose land it has captured. The destruction of the dam comes as Ukrainian forces have been making gains on the battlefield, what some believe may be the early stages of Kiev's long-awaited counter-offensive, even though the Ukrainians haven't confirmed that. Russia's army denies blowing up the dam, instead blaming the Ukrainians. Aiming to prevent the offensive operations by the Russian army on this section of the front line, the Kiev regime committed an act of sabotage, or rather a terrorist act, the defense minister said. While the floodwaters are affecting ever more areas around Kherson, upstream the levels are critically low. Around the Zaporizhia power plant, the biggest in all of Europe, which relies on a pond connected to the river for cooling. The International Atomic Energy Agency says so far there's no danger, but that could change. It is therefore vital that this cooling pond, this cooling pond remains intact. Nothing must be done to potentially undermine its integrity. So, Poppy, as you can see, they're a very difficult, a very dangerous situation on so many levels right now for uh, this region. One of the things that I think people at home need to need to understand is that these uh, rescue operations that we're seeing here on the ground, they're happening under almost constant shelling. So it is a very dangerous thing for a lot of these rescuers, and of course, a lot of the people who are stranded as well. And just a couple of minutes ago, Poppy, the Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, he came out and he said because of the situation, the 100,000 people around this area are now without drinking water. Poppy. Wow. Hundreds of thousands without drinking water in the middle, in the middle of the shelling, in the middle of a war zone. Fred, thank you. We're so glad you're there. Thank you. Well, it's a move that caught the Gulf world off guard. Now, players and families of 9-11 victims are reacting to the PGA, partnering with Saudi-backed Live Golf. And a gunman opened fire as hundreds of people stood outside a graduation ceremony in Richmond, Virginia. Two people were killed. We have the latest on that ahead. Welcome back. Well, gunshots rang out near a high school graduation yesterday in Richmond, Virginia. The ceremonies had just ended. The shots caused hundreds of people in attendance to scatter, fearing, obviously, for their lives. Two people were killed. At least five more were injured. One of those, a nine-year-old girl who was hit by a car as she fled the scene. One witness described what he saw. Just everybody started running, and I pushed her down on the ground. We got down on the ground, and... Um, it's just chaos from there. You just kept hurting shots. It was like eight, nine, ten shots. As they heard the gunfire, uh, it was obviously chaos because people were having panic attacks, falling on the ground, screaming. This should not be happening anywhere. Anywhere. Whether it's in Richmond, whether it's in Virginia, whether it's 
in the United States. This should not be happening anywhere. When police have arrested a 19-year-old who they say may have known one of the victims, he is expected to face two counts of second-degree murder. A total of four firearms were recovered from the scene. Richmond Public Schools closed today as people grieve the shooting. And overnight, Secretary of State Antony Blinken met with Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman in Jeddah. Blinken says they had an open and candid discussion on several issues. He's now headed to Riyadh to talk to other top Saudi officials on economic cooperation. Saudi Arabia announces that it will slash oil output starting in July. That's important to think about as you move back here to the U.S. Pro golfers around the world are now reacting to the PGA's shocking, and I want to put emphasis on shocking, announcement that it's partnering with the Saudi-backed Live uh, Golf League. The tour announced a deal yesterday after more than a year-long bitter feud between the two groups. Big shout-out to those Washington operatives cashing retainer checks from the PGA who now have to do a total 180 on their pitch to lawmakers. CNN sports anchor Coy Wire joins us now. And Coy, the players said that they had no clue this announcement was coming. That's wild to me. Yeah, two-time major champion Colin Morikawa, he tweeted, uh, love finding out morning news on Twitter. Wow. It's a big shock to many uh, players, even star players. And PGA Tour Commissioner Jay Monahan, he held an intense meeting with players yesterday ahead of the Canadian Open. Here's some of them speaking about what went on behind those doors. It was contentious. Uh, there were many moments where certain players were calling for new leadership of the PGA Tour and even got a couple standing ovations. But there was a lot of anger in that room from players, that feeling like they can't trust what the leadership of the PGA Tour says anymore. Did any players call Jay a hypocrite in the meeting? It was mentioned, yeah. Some, some yeah. And, he saw, and he took it. He said, yeah, he took it for sure. Now, Monaghan was asked about that change of his position on the PGA Tour accepting money from Saudi Arabia. A year ago, he was blasting players who chose to jump over and join Live Golf. I recognize that people are going to call me a hypocrite. And anytime I've said anything, I said it with the information I had at that moment. And I said, I said it based on someone that's trying to compete for the PGA Tour and our players. Um, and so I accept those criticisms, but circumstances do change. And I think that, you know, in looking at the big picture and looking, you know, looking at looking at it this way, that's that's what that's what got us to this point. The governor of Saudi Arabia's Sovereign Wealth Fund will join the PGA Tour's board of directors and lead the new business venture as chairman, though the PGA Tour will have a majority stake. The commissioner said that the agreement was reached after seven weeks of talks. As part of the deal, both sides are dropping all pending lawsuits. Uh, Phil, Poppy, live players uh, can start to play on the PGA Tour again after this 2023 season. Well, I have a lot of questions, but one of them is... So the players had no say. They just have to do this. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And and it must be frustrating for those players who did not jump over and cash out on joining Live. They must be livid now that they are being yeah. forced to do so without even having been asked about it. The PGA Tour seemingly wow. going ahead and doing exactly what they told PGA players that they probably shouldn't do, which is accept money from Live Golf. The Saudis, yeah. Mm-hmm. This story is amazing. Coy, thanks as Thank always. You. We're going to keep talking about this. Yeah, Bob Costas will be on later to talk about it. I'm sure he has views. Yeah. <laughs> Very candid views.
Well, he was one of Donald Trump's most trusted allies during his presidency. Now he's a critical witness in the investigation into his former boss. The information Mark Meadows may have shared with the federal grand jury. Former Deputy White House Press Secretary Sarah Matthews, who worked with Trump and with Meadows, will join us live to discuss. Coming up next. Welcome back. We learned this morning there's a major new development in Donald Trump's mounting legal issues. Sources telling CNN that Trump's former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, has testified before a federal grand jury investigating Trump. It's well known Meadows is a key figure in two investigations related to the former president, the probe into Trump's effort to overturn the results of the 2020 election and the investigation into his handling of classified documents. Now, we must note it's not exactly clear which line of inquiry not both, the special counsel is considering January 6th or classified documents. Again, could be both. Joining us now, Sarah Matthews. She's the former deputy White House press secretary under President Trump. Sarah, I want to take a step back for a minute because there's so many names, there's multiple investigations, there's so much going on. Talk to me about who Mark Meadows is, was, and what his role was in the administration that you were in at the same time. Yes, so Mark Meadows was the chief of staff and he played a super hands-on role in everything that Trump did. He always wanted to be in every meeting and be around so that way Trump would see him and lean on him. And um, But then also he kind of was one of his chief enablers. I found often that he wouldn't push back on some of um, Trump's you know worst instincts. And I think that uh, in terms of both of these investigations, whether it's the classified documents case or the uh, January 6th probe and the plot to overturn the 2020 election, he was a central figure in both. And so if he is cooperating in either of those or both of those investigations, then that would definitely spell trouble for Donald Trump. Well, the indication from his lawyer's statement, which I'm paraphrasing a bit, was essentially he will tell the truth when he legally needs to. Is he someone that took contemporaneous notes, wrote memos, wrote things down after he left the room? I think that uh, what we kind of learned from Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony, um, which was one of his top aides and was right uh, by his side in nearly every meeting, was that she took a lot of notes. And so I'm sure that if she testified before either of those uh, grand juries, that her notes and her account of events would be crucial to the investigation. And his text messages. The oh, yeah. January There's 6th committee, a lot of text them. messages, and he clearly, if he wasn't taking verbatim notes, he was verbatim text messaging pretty much That's everybody throughout the course of the process. You can start to put those two things together. I, I do want to ask, you know, we saw Chris Christie get into the race yesterday against the former president, your former boss. We saw Mike Pence get in this morning. I want to play something Chris Christie said um, about kind of the debating Trump and get your sense of what would work and wouldn't work. Take a listen. You better have somebody on that stage who can do to him what I did to Marco. Because that's the only thing that's going to defeat Donald Trump. So just for context, what Christie is referring to there is a moment back in 2016 where he basically ended Marco Rubio's campaign by destroying him uh, verbally, rhetorically, and painfully on a debate stage. Um, do you think that that's possible? with the former president, given how we've seen him operate over the course of the last seven years? I think if we've learned anything about Donald Trump, it's that he's Teflon. No matter kind of what attack you launch at him, it just seems to spring right off. But I would like to see Chris Christie on a debate stage with Donald Trump. Obviously, we saw what he was able to do with Marco Rubio in 2016, 
But I think that um, no one else in the race is going to take on Trump as head on as we've seen Chris Christie willing to do so. We have seen others who have um, kind of attacked Trump. Ron DeSantis has been starting to be a little bit more fierce in his attacks toward Trump. Asa Hutchinson has been. But Asa Hutchinson has also uh, taken the debate pledge and said that he would support uh, Donald Trump candidacy. I don't know if you're going to see Chris Christie take that same Mm -hmm. agreement. And it's clear that his candidacy seems to be a kamikaze candidacy, that he wants to try to take down Donald Trump. And he kind of knows that his chances at you think that. I believe that. I think that he knows that um, he's unpopular with voters and that he is just going to be that disruptor candidate who is going to create a lane potentially for another He candidate. takes issue with that, obviously. I thought it was interesting because that has been sort of a narrative among a lot of pundits, some of the press. But what he said yesterday that I thought was interesting, he said, I love seeing this, some of the press coverage of me getting ready to run. And there's this thing, Christie doesn't really care about winning. All he cares about is destroying Trump. And I, I do think it forgets how he governed New Jersey. Not all perfect at all, but won a blue state by such a wide margin, 22 points in 2013. There was Bridgegate, right? And that's going to be an issue for him. But does saying that he's only running to destroy Trump leave out what he has done in his own career? I have a hard time taking his candidacy seriously, maybe just because he's flip-flopped so much on his support for Trump. Totally fair. With the first establishment Republican to really enable and support Trump in 2016. Exactly. He legitimized his um, candidacy. And then I think now he has flip-flopped just because of political expediency. But he was supporting Trump up until 2020. He was Trump's debate prepper for the uh, debates against Joe Biden. But I do think that is an interesting fact that will be uh, interesting to see how that plays out if he is on a debate stage with Trump given that he helped prep him so he might know what his weak points are. We have to go, but real quickly, do you think the former president is worried about being on a debate stage with Chris Mm -hmm. Christie? I think he's probably worried uh, being on a debate stage with anyone at this point. He hasn't had to debate, you know, anyone since 2016 other than Joe Biden, of course. But he hasn't had to be challenged by a ton of uh, contenders all at once. Except for our Kaylin Collins, who did a masterful job doing that, I will just say. There's a lot to get into in the months ahead. We're going to be busy. Sarah Matthews, thanks so much. Thank you. All right, new this morning, the woman we told you about yesterday, we, we gave you this story, who shot and killed a mother of four in Florida over a neighborhood dispute. Well, that woman um, has just been arrested. The charges she now faces ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. So this is a significant development overnight on a story we brought you yesterday. Police in Florida have arrested an Ocala woman in connection with the fatal shooting of her neighbor. The woman who was shot and killed is named A.J. Owens, and the Marion County Sheriff says that Susan Louise Lawrence was taken into custody. Lawrence was taken into custody late last night, four days after Owens was shot. She is facing multiple charges, including manslaughter and assault. Officials say that the victim and that is the victim on your screen, was a mother of four. Uh, The two of them were in a long-running feud over her children playing outside. The latest incident took place Friday when Lawrence allegedly shot through the front door. The victim's mother said this at a news conference just yesterday. My grandchildren's mother was shot and killed with her nine-year-old son standing next to her. She had no weapon. She posed no imminent threat to anyone. Now, 
Lawrence claims that she acted in self-defense, but detectives say her actions were not justifiable under Florida state law. We will continue to follow this. And also this morning, Prince Harry back in a London courtroom for a second day of testimony against the UK publisher. The Mirror newspaper group is accused of illegally accessing private information, including hacking phones. Now on Tuesday, during hours of grueling questioning by the defense, the Duke of Sussex said tabloids have effectively tried to ruin his relationships. CNN's Nada Bashir is live outside the courthouse in London. Nada, yesterday's testimony was visceral on some level. What about today's second day of historic testimony? Well, look, Phil, what we are seeing behind us in the court is Prince Harry facing yet another round of intense questioning by Andrew Green, the lawyer representing the British tabloid publisher Mirror Group newspapers, pressing the Duke of Sussex on the finer details around articles that have been submitted by his team published between the mid-1990s and 2009, articles which they say so the telltale signs of unlawful information gathering. We're talking about phone hacking, the interception of Prince Harry's voicemails, as well as the voicemails of those around him, including senior members of the royal family, and also the use of private investigators to glean information around Prince Harry's activities and those around him. Now, Prince Harry has been very clear in his testimony in court about the impact that this invasion of privacy has had on his life growing up up uh, until this point. But what we have seen is a really intense cross-examination of his claims, and today that has continued. Andrew Green, uh, the lawyer representing MGN, pressing Prince Harry on the evidence where he believes the proof is that the Mirror Group newspaper's journalists used unlawful tactics. How he can prove that phone hacking did indeed take place or that his phone specifically uh, was hacked. Prince Harry uh, so far has not been able to provide the final details around that but maintains that he believes it is clear that Mirror Group newspapers used unlawful tactics to get this private information published in those articles being assessed today in court. Bill? Nada, thanks so much for the reporting. Well, Pope Francis is set to go under, undergo surgery today. We're going to take you live to the hospital where that will happen in Rome. What we're learning about his condition this morning. That's next. Well, a seemingly ordinary procedural vote on a rule went up in flames on the House floor on Tuesday. Eleven Republicans all aligned with the far-right House Freedom Caucus banned together, and they voted against a rule to advance a bill to prohibit the federal government from banning gas stoves. Now, it was a rebuke, a direct rebuke, of Speaker Kevin McCarthy. They are upset over the deal that he struck with President Biden to raise the debt ceiling. Yeah, today we took down the rule because we're frustrated at the way this place is operating. You know, we took a stand in January to end the era of the imperial speakership. Now, the protest vote indicates that those members have not exactly decided yet whether to call to oust McCarthy from the speakership. Many who are rebuking McCarthy are allies of former President Trump. Now, in his book, Ben Terrace, our next guest, looks at the D.C. landscape after Trump. In it, he writes, quote, yes, Washington felt different under Trump. But what about once he left? Who was allowed to become powerful? And from where would they draw that power? What were the rules of the game and how did you win? That's a big part of what this book is about. It's about the Washington that predated Trump and the Washington he left in his wake. Mostly, though, it's about the people. Joining us now is Ben Terrace, the author of The Big Break, The Gamblers, Party Animals, and True Believers Trying to Win in Washington While America Loses Its Mind. He's also a reporter for The Washington Post. Hey, buddy. Hey. 
It's a really long title. Uh, yeah, book. yeah, it's a But mouthful. it's actually an accurate capture of what this is. And, and I thought the, the last line that I just read is the most important. It's about the people, right? And for those who don't know, and I'm a, a, an unabashed big fan of Ben's work, personally, so-so. Yeah. But the work is, he's very well known in Washington for being the person who actually shows you the real, not kind of the scene of Washington, which is why he's so talented and why this book is so fascinating, because it's about the people. When you set out to write this book, which I don't think is for Washington types, this is for people outside of the city who actually want to understand why the city is so insane sometimes. What were you thinking? Yeah, well, when I decided to write the book, I knew that Washington was broken, right? And I think everyone kind of realized Washington was broken. But I have this great job where I get to kind of see why. And I try to find the most interesting, compelling, weird, bizarre uh, people I can find who also feel, you know, representative of what's going on in Washington. And I just had this great opportunity to do so. And so I felt like if I can find the most interesting people and they're interesting to me and they're interesting to the normal people like my wife who do not care about Washington the way that most politicians do and journalists do. If I can find those people and, and write a book about it, your average person can read it, be entertained, maybe laugh, maybe feel upset about things, but also say, oh, this is why things are the way they are. And, and very on brand for you, this is not a book that ever really reveals your opinion on things. It just shows people the reality. They get to make the opinion. I think one of the like, kind of sharpest realities is on one character in particular, Sean McElwee, who if you were in Washington over the course of the last several years, if you were around democratic politics, you knew who he was. He was one of the biggest players in the game. His rise was extraordinarily fast. His self-implosion was extraordinarily fast. Um, you describe him, there's one section of the book that, that I really liked where as you're kind of profiling him, you say, quote, uh, Sean seemed to me like the type of person made specifically for Washington after Trump. Brash, ideologically malleable, an outsider who wormed his way inside while also being the type of creature that had swum in the swamp for eons. Brash, ideologically malleable, an outsider who wormed his way inside. He made big bets, big allies, and big enemies. He walked right up to the line of acceptable behavior, and he kept walking. So tell me who Sean McElwee is. Sometimes when I was reporting this book, I, I got into these rooms, and I'm like, why are people letting me in here, and why are they saying the things that they're doing, right? <laughs> Sean is this guy who was a big deal in Washington, Democratic pollster working, you know, big campaigns and uh, getting tweeted out by the White House, getting big meetings, and, and definitely on the rise. He also hosted a poker night uh, and a lot of happy hours. But the poker night that I would go to on a, on a regular basis was wild because this guy didn't just bet on poker. He was betting on politics. He was a pollster who would bet on the races that, that he had polling information on. Sometimes against the candidates he was on retainer for, right? Yeah, yeah, and, I, and he would do this openly. And you know, one of the things from the Trump years is like sometimes if you do the scandalous thing in the open, people might not think it's so scandalous. But I was sitting there and I'm like, what am I, what am I seeing? Why, why is he doing this in front of me, uh, you know, bragging about, about these bets? But the fact is nobody seemed to mind for a while until suddenly everybody did. I think the... the the thing that I took from it was not just about him. It was for the people underneath him. They came to Washington, were ideologically pure to some degree, and really wanted to do good things, big things, move the party in a specific direction. What's your takeaway in terms of where they are now? Yeah, well, one of the things about this book that I think makes it different than your average Washington book is it is about actual people. And, it, you know, people who went to work for Sean wanted to make change this is, this is the story of Washington. People go to Washington to make change often, right? It's not just filled with people who are cynical to begin with. But when you go there, sometimes you have a boss that acts a certain way or you see how the levers of power work and you become cynical. And for a lot of these people, 
they're in that fight right now. They're like, am I, am I making more change or is this place changing me, me more than I'm changing it? It's just a, am I doing this right? Do I, I hold it up? Is that how we do it? Yeah, it's that looks just, right to me. Are you yeah. happy now? Yeah, I'm happy. happy? <laughs> um, it's a really great book. It's fascinating. The one character we talked about, there's about 15 others in there. It's just great reporting. It gives you a really good inside view into a town that seems difficult to understand. And maybe after this, it's still difficult to understand, but you'll be very entertained while reading it. Congrats on the book, my friend. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. CNN This Morning continues right now. Orange, hazardous, smoky cloud descending upon the city. The poor air quality is caused by more than 150 active wildfires burning in Canada. More than 40 million people across the Northeast, Midwest, and Mid-Atlantic are under air quality alerts. This is a lot worse than what we've seen in many, many years. Mark Meadows testifying to a federal grand jury. Also unclear when he testified or which line of inquiry the special counsel is pursuing, the documents or January 6th or perhaps both. He's their number one witness. If he testified truthfully, which I assume he did, he's going to be front and center in the case they bring. Police say a gunman opened fire on a crowd of people gathered after a high school graduation ceremony. Everybody started running. It's just chaos from there. You just kept hurting shots. This should not be happening anywhere. A child should be able to go to their graduation and enjoy the accomplishment with their friends and their family. Today, before God and my family, I'm announcing I'm running for president of the United States. Governor Chris Christie is entering a large and only growing Republican field. He took clear aim at the man who soundly defeated him, though, in 2016, Donald Trump. The Republican base is still largely with Donald Trump, so he has a hard hill to climb. PGA Tour and Live Tour announced that they were now in business together. One year ago, Jay Monahan invoked 9-11 to attack Saudi-backed Live Golf. I think you'd have to be living under a rock to not know that there are significant implications. What we're talking about today is coming together to unify the game of golf. He sold out every single one of us. He turned his back on the 9-11 community. It's despicable. He's disgusting. So there is a lot going on this morning. We will absolutely get to that story that you just heard there at the end between the PGA and Live and Saudi and what all of this means ahead with Bob Costas. But we have a lot to get to this morning, including this heavy smoke from Canadian wildfires pouring into the United States, shrouding cities all across the Northeast and the Midwest. Take a live look here at New York City. The air quality is terrible. It's actually among the worst in the entire world right now. Tens of millions of Americans from Minnesota to New England all the way down to North Carolina are at risk of breathing really unhealthy air today. So that's New York. Here's what it looks like in Philadelphia this morning. Forecasters say we're going to see more and more rounds of smoke through at least tomorrow as wildfires continue to rage out of control in Quebec and across Canada from coast to coast. Athena Jones is live in Manhattan. And Athena, people are being urged to stay inside to limit outdoor activity. You're wearing a mask right now. What's the reality right now? Good morning, Phil. Well, the reality is you can still see the smoke, certainly here along the Hudson River where we are. It's not just the morning haze. This is smoke from those more than 100 wildfires burning in Quebec, more than 500 miles away, but still having very much of an impact here. We have our drone up in the air, which should be able to give you a few more shots of what it looks like here along the Hudson. But as you mentioned, New York City uh, is, is among the top five worst polluted cities in the world right now. At one point uh, last night, it was number one. Now it's 
second to New Delhi in India, which is known uh, for having very polluted air. And, and this air quality index is considered very unhealthy. And it's particularly difficult for people who have, you know, respiratory issues, asthma, uh, heart disease, uh, the elderly, young children, those who are pregnant. Uh, these are the folks who should take special care and, and take all the precautions they can to stay healthy. And why is that? That's because wildfire smoke has uh, something called particulate matter. It's PM 2.5 is what it's called. And when you breathe in this stuff, it, it's extre extremely tiny and dangerous. It can be breathed in deeply into the lungs. It can enter the bloodstream. It can lead to all sorts of health problems, not just asthma and heart disease uh, and respiratory issues. And so that is, is really the safety issue uh, top of mind for New York, New York officials. Here in New York City, public schools will remain open, but all outdoor activities have been canceled. And upstate or in central New York and Onondaga County, 10 school districts have canceled outdoor activities. Uh, and the mayor here in New York City is, is urging folks to pay attention to any symptoms and, and stay out of stay inside as much as possible. He'll be having a briefing around 10 a.m. to give us an update on just how long this is expected to take place. We understand there's a cold front coming through that could push more smoke south and east. So this may not be over for a few days. Phil, it, Poppy? It's just so striking to see. I mean, I've lived here for almost 20 years and never seen something like this um, in New York City. Athena, we appreciate you and your team being out there. I'm glad you're masked up. Phil. All right. Also this morning, a major development in special counsel Jack Smith's investigation into former President Donald Trump. Now, we've learned Trump's former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, has testified before a federal grand jury. Now, it's unclear whether his testimony was part of Smith's classified documents probe or his January 6th investigation. Maybe both. But Meadows could prove to be a critical witness. Now, asked about this development, a lawyer representing Meadows said in a statement, quote, without commenting on whether or not Mr. Meadows has testified before the grand jury or in any other proceeding, Mr. Meadows has maintained a commitment to tell the truth where he has a legal obligation to do so. So I want to turn now to our CNN senior legal analyst, Ellie Honig. He's a former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York and a former New Jersey state prosecutor. All right, Ellie, decode this for us. How important is Mark Meadows in one or both of the investigations that are ongoing right now? Well, I think Mark Meadows could be the single most important witness in this whole case writ large. Mark Meadows is everywhere. Now, just a reminder, Meadows was Donald Trump's White House chief of staff for the last 10 months or so of Trump's presidency, meaning he was there through the election. He was there through January 6th. He was there up until the final day. Now, just as one indicator of how important Mark Meadows was, as the January 6th attack was happening that afternoon, dozens of powerful people were texting Mark Meadows, desperately trying to get him to get Donald Trump to call off the rioters. One example, Representative Chip Roy said it simply, fix this now. Also, we remember the testimony last year of Cassidy Hutchinson in front of the January 6th committee. Cassidy Hutchinson was one of Mark Meadows' senior aides, and she said that on that day, there were several conversations that Meadows had one-on-one -on -one with Donald Trump. Now, she didn't know exactly what was said. You know who does? Mark Meadows. He will be questioned about those conversations. Now, also, one more place Mark Meadows pops up. We remember the infamous phone call Donald Trump made to the Georgia Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger. That could be a key part of the Fulton County case where Trump asked Raffensperger to just find votes for him. Guess who else was on that phone call? Mark Meadows. He introduces the participants. And finally, again, we don't know exactly what he testified about, but let's remember Meadows was the chief of staff when the White House was being packed up, and he was a key liaison between the White House 
and the archives. So he may know something about what was packed, what was classified, was anything declassified. He's like the Forrest Gump of exactly. every investigation going on, <laughs> except he was a paid employee. Along yep. those lines, though, the Justice Department had to fight for this testimony, right? They sure did. So Donald Trump tried to block this testimony. He came in and claimed executive privilege. He said, wait a sec. These were conversations when I was president with my chief of staff. You don't get that. DOJ went to court. They went to the district court. They won. The court said, no, this is part of a criminal grand jury subpoena. Then it got appealed by Donald Trump up to the Court of Appeals. DOJ won there. And only then were they able to get that testimony from Mark Meadows. Okay, so uh, poor Evan Perez, our colleague, who yeah. I text every time I have questions about any of this stuff, which is pretty much every single day because there's so many different elements of it. There's another grand jury. What do we know about another grand jury? A little bit of a twist here because we knew about the D.C. federal grand jury. Now there's some action at a Florida federal grand jury. This could mean a couple things, Phil. It could just be ministerial. It could just be there's some witnesses. They want to get the testimony down in Florida. You can then just read it to your main grand jury in D.C. Or it could be something bigger. There's a concept called venue, which says that federal prosecutors have to charge a crime in the federal geographic district where at least some part of the crime happened, if there are some people, perhaps who work at Mar-a-Lago, who may have criminal liability, it may be that they only did things in Florida, not in D.C. Now, the bigger question is, could it be that DOJ, the special counsel, might try to charge Donald Trump in Florida instead of D.C.? Now, there's a stronger case for venue in Florida. There's a sort of weaker option in D.C., but there's a big difference here, which is, Donald Trump won Florida. He's going to have a much friendlier jury pool in Florida. You know how much he got in D.C.? 5.4% of the vote, meaning 94.6% of people voted against him in D.C. So Florida's a much better jury pool for Donald Trump. D.C. is a much better jury pool for prosecutors. Can you remind us, I mean, you talk about what a jury pool, that would imply a potential indictment. We're not yes. gauging one way or the other, and I will bother you every day and ask you to make <laughs> predictions about when something might be coming, sure. and you will try and avoid that question best as you can, <laughs> other than saying soon. I'll give you a lawyerly hedge. Yeah. <laughs> ambiguously. But can you... Tell us, where are we right yeah. now? So, look, Meadows was one of the big missing pieces who had not yet testified. Now we know that that's in place. We don't know when he testified, but we know he has also another big indicator. Earlier this week, Trump's legal team went in and met with DOJ, including Jack Smith. And, Phil, in my experience, that's the kind of meeting that happens towards the very end of an investigation. I feel like I was just going to say I'm, like, annoyed you're pretty good at the magic wall. That makes me uncomfortable <laughs> as somebody who works on this sometimes. I'd the one you do is way more complicated. Now, one other thing to know, yeah. when we talk about the special counsel, he's got two investigations. He's got Mar-a-Lago. He's got January 6th. Jack Smith is going to make the first call. Do we indict or not? But ultimately, Merrick Garland has to review and sign off on that. But he does have to defer to Jack Smith. And taking it out one more level, Phil, there are four pending criminal investigations or cases. Now, we have the two DOJ investigations, we have Mar-a-Lago, we have January 6th. Of course, Donald Trump has been indicted, let's remember that, in Manhattan. He's got a trial date for March of next year. And then we've gotten the Fulton County DA case, which Fonnie Willis has, let's just say, telegraphed. She's likely to indict on sometime later this summer. So we got a busy summer ahead, Phil. I'm with you. That was a great rundown. Thank, Thank you very you. much. That check is sloppy, though, for the record. So yeah, you like can deduct, got a, deduct a, a point for that. Yeah, I've got one point over. <laughs> magic wall. I don't ever want to have to stand up there with you guys and compete with that. That was super helpful, Ellie. Thank you very much. Uh, now to Rome. The Vatican says Pope Francis is set to have abdominal surgery today and that he will stay in the hospital for several days. That is what they're saying, to recover. It comes after he had a scheduled checkup at the same hospital yesterday in Rome. The 86-year-old pontiff has faced a series of health issues in recent years. And our Barbie Nadeau is live outside of the hospital in Rome with more. I think everyone around the world wants to know 
How serious is this? Well, I mean, we don't know how serious it is. We know that he attended his, held his, his Wednesday audience this morning. He came to this hospital, the hospital where he, all popes have been coming for years, uh, yesterday for a checkup. It was something that uh, the Vatican said was, was uh, scheduled. He was here for about an hour. And then sort of out of the blue, we're told, after his audience, he came back here to have this surgery to repair a hernia. Now, this is apparently, as we understand, related to uh, colon surgery that he had a couple of years ago. He will be going going under a general anesthetic. So that's always, of course, dangerous for someone this age. But we don't know. And we're expecting we'll get a bulletin from the Vatican sometime later this afternoon. But this is an 86-year-old man with a history of health problems who, you know, is confined to a wheelchair for much of the time and, and who's undergoing serious surgery. So if it were any elderly person in your life, you'd be worried. And I think the general Catholic faith is very concerned right now, sending their prayers for the Pope. Barbie, we appreciate you being there. Please keep us posted. I know he's going to be there for several days recovering. Thank you. Also happening this morning, very busy day of news, former Vice President Mike Pence announced he's ready to run for the nation's top job. We can turn this country around, but different times call for different leadership. Today, our party and our country need a leader that will appeal, as Lincoln said, to the better angels of our nature. I have long believed to whom much is given, much will be required. My family and I have been blessed beyond measure with opportunities to serve this nation, and it'd be easy to stay on the sidelines. But that's not how I was raised. That's why today, before God and my family, I'm announcing I'm running for president of the United States. Now, Pence now joins a growing field of Republicans trying to make Donald Trump a one-term president, and he's not the only Republican jumping into the race today. CNN is on the trail this morning. Our Kyung Law is following the Pence campaign in Iowa. Eva McKend is following North Dakota's governor, Doug Burgum. And our Omar Jimenez in Manchester, New Hampshire, following Chris Christie's campaign. Kyung begins our coverage. Kyung, good morning to you. So Pence is going to hold a rally in Iowa later today. What is his message? Uh, his message very simply this morning, Poppy, is that this race isn't over, that there are many months ahead and that Mike Pence is the person who they believe is the person for Iowa, that this is a place where Pence has almost universal name ID. Republicans all know him, but the campaign believes that Republicans may not remember the Mike Pence before he stepped into the White House, that he's a governor of Indiana, that he has decades of experience that was also in Congress as a conservative member, and that it is here in the living rooms and in the diners of Iowa that retail politics, winning votes, hand handshake by handshake where Pence will excel. And it is here with the Midwestern values and the deep faith that they believe that Mike Pence will align with the caucus members in Iowa. While you're seeing Ron DeSantis, according to the campaign, going Trump-like, they say that is not going to be the case for Mike Pence, that they believe that Trump has drifted into irrelevancy ever since the 2022 campaign, that there is a large portion of Iowans who are persuadable, about 75 to 80 percent. And that persuasion begins for Mike Pence today. But he's not the only one jumping into the race. Now to my colleague, Eva McKend in Fargo, North Dakota. Eva. 
Yeah, good morning to you from Fargo, North Dakota, where two-term conservative go Governor Doug Burgum uh, will enter this crowded Republican primary, arguing that this race could use someone from this part of the country. His pitch will focus on the economy, energy policy, and national security. He's not inclined to fight these cultural battles. He is conservative, to be sure, though, signing one of the most restrictive abortion bans into law in the country and also curtailing transgender rights. Uh, but he won't take broadsides at his Republican opponents. He released a video earlier this week. Take a listen to how he will pitch himself to voters. Anger, yelling, infighting, that's not going to cut it anymore. Let's get things done. In North Dakota, we listened with respect and we talked things out. That's how we can get America back on track. Now, Burgum, a longtime businessman before becoming go governor of this state, uh, talking about how he bet the family farm on a software company. That uh, company eventually bought by Microsoft for a billion dollars. As you travel downtown Fargo, you see that his presence looms large in all the, the projects that he has his hands in. And then in, over in uh, Arthur, his hometown, conservatives really proud that uh, he is entering this contest. He'll continue to make his pitch this week in Iowa and New Hampshire. Over to you, Omar. Uh, thank you, Eva. Chris Christie is officially in the former New Jersey governor at a town hall kickoff event last night. He laid out the foundation for his campaign, which in part is saying that the country has a choice between getting bigger and getting smaller. And he went through points throughout American history, going back to the Revolutionary War, where he said the country chose to go bigger and he feels we're at a similar point now especially because he says former President Donald Trump is someone who would make the country smaller. And of his GOP field that he is now running in, he says they've been treating Trump like he who must not be named, a.k.a. Voldemort, and that Christie isn't going to play those games. He made that clear. Take a listen. A lonely, self-consumed, self-serving mirror hog is not a leader. The reason I'm going after Trump is twofold. One, he deserves it. And two, it's the way to win. Now, of course, those two, Christie and Trump, worked together at points and their relationship deteriorated over years. But any path to victory for Christie is definitely going to be an uphill journey just based on him finishing sixth in New Hampshire back in 2016, but also sh polls showing him around the bottom of the candidates that are in at this point. That said, I'm told his campaign will focus on him, will look like, I should say, him being a happy warrior who is not afraid to stand up to Donald Trump, not afraid to take risks and not afraid to speak his mind. Phil, Poppy. So interesting, guys. You've got a lot on your plate. Thank you for bringing us the reporting from Ankeny, Ohio, Fargo, North Dakota, and Manchester, New Hampshire. I love it when it's just like, it's no longer speculation and pull. It's just Happening. like on the ground, getting to work, letting our people do their thing. Yeah. It's a long way to go, though. All right, also this morning, it looks like Ukraine's long-awaited counteroffensive may be underway. But officials tell CNN the destruction of a major dam near the front lines could complicate some of Ukraine's plans. Former Defense Secretary Mark Esper will join us live to weigh in. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. 
Welcome back. The U.S. and Western officials are seeing signs that Ukraine's counteroffensive is already underway. Military intelligence officials tell CNN that Ukrainian forces have begun testing Russian positions with artillery strikes and ground attacks, searching for vulnerabilities. And this long-awaited counteroffensive is expected to be carried out on multiple fronts. This is nearly 16 months after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Joining us this morning is Mark Esper, who served as defense secretary under President Trump. Secretary Esper, good morning and thank you. Good morning. What needs to happen for this counteroffensive to be successful? Well, I think uh, what needs to happen is what seems to be underway right now. They've been conducting shaping operations for the last couple weeks or so, you know, bombing refineries, uh, knocking out rail lines, etc. But now we're in the part, the phase that we call reconnaissance and force, where uh, small armored units go out and probe this 600-mile front line, if you will, to try and find the weaknesses and the strong points. And I think once they figure that out, you'll start seeing the main effort emerge very quickly, along with supporting efforts to really push the Russians back in both the east and the south. And it'll be quite dramatic, I expect. Mr. Secretary, um, one of the things that I've picked up over the course of the last several months, both here in the U.S., talking to U.S. officials, but also talking to European counterparts as well, um, I think was captured by David Ignatius in the Washington Post this morning. I want to pull it up. It says, quote, if Ukraine can drive back an already shaky Russian army, it stands a chance of forcing Moscow to bargain for an end to its failed invasion. But if Ukraine fails, it would be a bitter blow to the country's weary population and could endanger continued support from some restless NATO members. And I think the question I've had leading up to this moment is, is this kind of a do or die moment, to use a poor cliche, for the Ukrainian forces for Ukraine in this conflict right now? It's a very significant moment. Everybody is looking to Ukraine to be very successful. You know, I was in uh, Europe uh, two weeks ago for about two weeks, and the number one question over there is, where is U.S. support? And everybody fairly thinks that um, <coughs> if Ukraine does well, U.S. support will continue. If not, it could wither. And if U.S. support withers, then a lot of other countries will go with it. So it's very important. I think Ukraine understands this politically, not just militarily, that they have a very successful counteroffensive that shows people a return on their investment in the Ukrainian military. We know that some groups of Ukrainian pilots have, traveled, have just started traveling to the U.K. to get trained on these F-16 fighter jets. There were a lot. There were lawmakers in the U.S. who said we should have been training those pilots before we even made the decision to allow the F-16s to go, because it takes months, at least four, to get them trained up. Are they necessary in this counteroffensive at the front end? I think it would be very important to have them uh, on board now, but clearly it won't happen. I mean, when you're con conducting a combined arms offensive, which means heavy armored forces, mechanized infantry, artillery, etc., it would be helpful to have a long-range strike aircraft that could uh, hit targets deep, uh, tactical uh, uh, air support from those units as well, and then help clear the skies of Russian aircraft. But that won't be available. And I think Look, the administration is to blame for being late in terms of delivering uh, the most vital items, whether it's Abrams tanks um, or F-16 aircraft. Mr. Secretary, to poorly paraphrase one of your predecessors, you, you go to war with the army you have, not necessarily the army you want. But there's been some divergence, I think, between what U.S. officials have been saying publicly about the readiness of Ukraine of its forces in this moment versus maybe what the reality is behind the effort to kind of surge equipment. Do you think Ukrainian forces are ready to have a successful counteroffensive? You know, from what I can read in between the lines, and I've talked to a lot of folks in Europe recently, they have, they have enough, but they could do better if they had far more, particularly, of course, uh, again, F-16 aircraft to support them. Uh, it's unclear whether they have the numbers of tanks 
they need. But look, at this point, they have to move forward on the counteroffensive. They need to push the Russians back. They need to show success because it'll it'll not just help them on the battlefield, but it's going to help them again with Western allies and continued allied support. Um, John Bolton has an interesting opinion piece in The Wall Street Journal today where he takes on the Biden administration, uh, particularly on Iran. That's not surprising. What is surprising or not surprising and what is what is interesting, I think, is how he ties together what we're seeing in terms of alliances and changing alliances and the close relationship that we're seeing between China and Russia, how the UAE and Saudi Arabia play into it, into it given the increasing concerns about Iran. Here's what he writes. The UAE and others are also now more open to Russia and China. These tectonic developments augur impending strategic failure for America and its key allies. Do you agree? Well, look, we we need to shift uh, toward a focus on China as the greatest strategic threat we face in this century. But we we have to do so in a way that doesn't create a vacuum in the Middle East. Uh, Clearly, China wants into the Middle East. China is a net energy importer, which is why they want access to both the Middle East and to Russia, by the way. And so we have to maintain a presence. I think the administration needs to work on its relationship with Saudi Arabia and others in the region. But look, we we also see Iran emerging. It's now like a top weapons supplier to Russia, as is China. So you see these blocks kind of shaping up out there in the global environment. What do you mean? So it's important that we we stay there. Sorry to step on you, Secretary, but what do you mean by the administration needs to work on its relationship with Saudi Arabia? President Biden went there uh, to the consternation of of, of many, uh, you know, fist bumped and then OPEC just slashed productions. Tony Blinken's there right now. And Blinken's there now having these meetings with a very cordial statement that came out yesterday. Well, what does improvement look like to you or work on look like to you? Well, I think work on is, is Tony Blinken's visit. I think that's important. But clearly the relationship is not where it needs to be, uh, be between us. I mean, we saw a few months ago, China brokered that peace treaty, if you will, between the Saudis and, and Iran. And that, that was not a good development. So I think it just requires... Uh, work not just with uh, the Saudis, but the UAE, Kuwait, Bahrain, others in the region to which we have a, a long-term relationship. Such a dynamic and fascinating situation. Mark Esper, thanks as always, sir. Appreciate it. Thanks. We'll see you guys. Good to have you. Former Vice President Mike Pence, now and New Jersey Governor, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, both officially in the race for the White House. How they plan to take on their former ally turned rival Donald Trump and how Trump's growing legal troubles may play into all of it. That's next. So a live look at the smoky sunrise here in New York City. That's right. This is because of smoke from Canadian wildfires that are making skies hazy here along the East Coast, all through the Midwest. And we've just learned, actually, that all New York City public schools are open today, but all their outdoor activities are canceled due to real health concerns over this air quality right here in New York City. Residents are being urged to stay inside. We'll keep following the latest. Well, also this morning, former Vice President Mike Pence is announcing his candidacy for the presidency in a video released a short time ago. Here it is. Different times call for different leadership. Today, our party and our country need a leader that will appeal, as Lincoln said, to the better angels of our nature. Now, Pence's announcement comes just hours after former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie also joined the race. He told his audience in New Hampshire that unlike other candidates, he's not afraid to name names or name person I am talking about who is obsessed with the mirror, who never admits a mistake, who never admits a fault, and who always finds someone else and something else to blame for whatever goes wrong, but finds every reason to take credit for anything that goes right. 
is Donald Trump. Joining us now are CNN political commentator and former special advisor to President Obama, Van Jones, and Josh Barrow, the man, myth, and legend behind the very serious <laughs> podcast and newsletter. Um, I feel like I ask the, the same question every single day in terms of, like, will Trump's legal liabilities be a problem? In the Can I just ask you, what are you guys seeing right now that interests you about the Republican field that maybe others are not? Uh, well, not his legal liabilities. I mean, his legal liabilities are a big substantive problem. I'm not minimizing them. I just feel like, like they're there. Right. And I think they're a big problem in the general election. I don't think they're going to stop him from, from winning a primary. I mean, I think, you know, one, one thing that's interesting about this primary is that Ron DeSantis is sort of rerunning the Ted Cruz playbook. He's trying to get to the right of Donald Trump on everything, being, you know, Mr. Conservative, the true conservative, as the Ted Cruz people would say. He literally has much of the Ted Cruz team working for him on this. And that didn't work last time. Ted Cruz lost. And I think what Donald Trump showed you was that a lot of these Republican primary voters... It's very few of them are going in with a checklist saying, you know, here are all of the, the ideological positions I have and I want the person who's most to the right on them. They're looking for an ethos that Donald Trump has. And so I don't think that anyone has, has put together a campaign that, that really addresses that concern about, you know, what it is on a gut level that these primary voters are looking for. I mean, to be fair, in Iowa, there are people who actually there, have There are. <laughs> and Ted Cruz won Iowa, but it's yeah, not I was just going to say, yeah, did, yeah. did well for him in Iowa. What, make it. me smarter. What am I not seeing right now that's important in the broader scheme of things? Of all the legal jeopardies and all the different prosecutors are looking uh, at him, the most dangerous prosecutor for him right now is Chris Christie. Because Chris Christie can say whatever he wants to. He has nothing to lose. He is like 0% chance of winning. And he is a household name. So if he continues to do what he's doing, uh, he's not going to get the nomination. But you finally have somebody in this race that's not scared of Donald Trump. You finally have somebody in this race who's actually willing to, to not attack him based on his rhetoric. Liberals attack him on his rhetoric. He's going to attack him based on his results and his record. That has not been done in a consistent way. Pointing out that he didn't build the wall. Pointing out that he left the economy in shambles. Pointing out that he did not show real leadership. So I, I am munching my popcorn. Uh, I'm a Democrat. <laughs> this is all fun for me. But uh, I, is it I, is it, it fun for you if John Cornyn's right, hmm? Senator Cornyn's right, who said yesterday that all of these people jumping in just makes it more likely that Trump wins? Because you're yeah. betting Biden can beat Trump, no question. I'm not betting that Biden can beat okay. Trump. No, who, who's, who, who took that bet? Well, I'm just saying. <laughs> no, no, you're, no, no. You're I, saying you're eating your popcorn. I'm eating if all my these pot people get Trump the nomination. Here's what I think. The best hope for Republicans that they don't want to have to deal with, with Donald Trump going forward is you get people in there that throw their best punches. And then what happened in our party was Bernie Sanders got out ahead. The first person that beat Bernie anywhere was Biden. Everybody dropped out, and then you were able to get past Bernie. The only which you know, you can see that's good or that's bad. In this case, somebody's got to beat Trump someplace, and the rest of them got to drop out. But in the meantime, you don't know who that's going to be. And so you might have a big kamikaze candidate right now, which is what I would say Chris Christie is likely to be. Chris Kamikaze Christie. He is going to take Donald Trump on head on and prosecute this guy. And he is a top notch prosecutor. And so Trump is going to have to deal with a prosecutor on stage with him at some point, I would imagine. And that could open a lane for somebody else. Chris Christie is not going to get the nomination, but I'm glad he's in the race. I love the fact that like, Chris Christie's going to call Van like 15 minutes after the show. Like, Here's why you're wrong. Bobby. I guess just the, the question, though, is, is that what, actually, what Republican voters want at this point in time? Like, are they open to alternatives? Do they want to see this all play out or are they just all going to land where 
the polls say they are right now. I mean, you know, I think odds on Trump is going to win the nomination. But I think, you know, if, if he's going to be beaten, somebody has to make the case that he shouldn't be the nominee. I think it's I think people replay 2016 too much. In 2016, you plausibly had a majority of Republican voters who didn't want Trump as the nominee, who were quite skeptical of him. And you had that fragmented field and it meant that he didn't need 50 percent to win, that 40 percent or so was good enough. Now he has won over the voters of the party. He has he, he's not over 50 percent in the polls except for a handful of them. But there's a clear majority of these voters to whom Trump is acceptable. They think he was a good president. They think he could be a good president again. And so if you're going to beat him this time, it's different from 2016. You have to make a case not just for yourself. You have to make a case about why should they should change their mind about Donald Trump. And so I think Van is right, but it's important that Chris Christie is out there doing that, even though I don't think the vote, if he can, if he succeeds in convincing voters that Chris, that, that Trump was not the winner they thought, I don't think that that means those voters are going to go to Christie himself. But I think it's right that someone needs to actually prosecute that case. If you're running against the front runner, you can't just talk about yourself and you can't just obliquely talk about them. You have to explain why that person should not be present. What about Mike Pence? So he just dropped his ad um, this morning, and it starts very optimistic, right? Um, but then, obviously, turns to all the problems he thinks this country has. What's interesting is he's in Iowa. He's going to lean a lot on the evangelical vote. But in this Fox News poll that's only a few days old, he is only at 6% with evangelical voters. Trump is at 59%. You know, it's interesting because the, you ha- if you're an evangelical voter, you had a reason to go with Trump earlier because you needed the Supreme Court. Yeah. You wanted the but judges. you got it now. You got them now. Yeah. You have the Supreme Court 6-3. You got a bunch of judges that I don't know where they came from. They came out of Cracker Jack box as far as I'm concerned. But you got them all now. What is it that Trump can offer the evangelicals now that Pence can't? I think that's something that, that Pence can say, listen, I work with the guy. I got you the courts. But now you're going to have to deal with somebody who is an offense to your values every day. Trump's really personal behavior yeah. is a stench in the nostrils of God. And you have no reason, no justification now for supporting someone who you know defies Can your you values. Can you imagine Mike case. Pence saying something like that? That's no. my question is no. in every interview leading up to this, I remember the John Carl interview in particular, he constantly demurs when it comes to actually insulting and checking his former, you know, the former Which president. I don't necessarily think he's a political position. I think that's just kind of him. That's what I'm wondering. Do you, does he, can he ever change into a fighter? It's not clear to me who he's a candidate for. I mean, if you are a socially conservative voter who doesn't care for Donald Trump, who is put off by his personal behavior, you have other options in this race. I mean, that is a key part of the demographic that Ron DeSantis is running squarely at. That's why he is preparing for that checklist and pushing all of these right-wing bills through the legislature in Florida. So he can go to those sorts of voters and say, I am your socially conservative champion. So I think that you know, Mike, Mike Pence, you know, liberals have always hated Mike Pence. Lots of Republicans came to hate, hate Mike Pence because of the events around January 6. And so I, I, I frankly don't understand why he's in this race. I just don't see who his constituency is. Well, I, I, I'm glad he's running. Uh, you know, I would say a couple things about Mike Pence. You know, this is somebody who actually believes in something. Uh, I don't agree with him, but he's a conviction politician. And I think that's important. Uh, you don't, sometimes you run because you believe in something. You, be, you believe that you have something to say to, to somebody. You aren't always rewarded in the polls or at the polls. But you, you got to, at some point, you're going to sit down. You're going to retire. You're going to look at your kids. You're going to look at your grandkids. You're going to I did everything I could to advance these values. So I respect Mike Pence. I think he's got the same chance of getting the nomination that Chris does, which Chris Christie does, which is zero. But I think it's healthy for the party and healthy for the country for him to be out there. You're just covering for the Bergmentum. I think that's what you want yeah. to call it. We're not going to talk about Doug Bergum? <laughs> oh, ah, out of time. Oh. Hey, I'm, not, I'm not against the Dakota. I'm pro Dakota. North I love and the south. last point yeah, no, that Van made. I love that point. Van Jones, Thank Josh you. Barrow. Appreciate it, guys. Thank you. Right. Thank you.
And we'll speak with the brother of former uh, Vice President Mike Pence, Indiana Congressman Greg Pence, in our next hour. And tonight, don't forget, Dana Bash will moderate a CNN Republican presidential town hall with Mike Pence. That's at 9 p.m. Eastern. In the meantime, another mass shooting in America. This one at a high school graduation in Richmond, Virginia. Two people are dead, including an 18-year-old graduate. Several more were injured, including a 9-year-old little girl who was hit by a car as she was just trying to flee the scene. We have a live report ahead. Plus, groundbreaking new discoveries that could change our understanding of human evolution. It turns out our extinct human relatives may have been more similar to us than we imagined. The explorer whose expedition led to these discoveries, Dr. Lee Berger, is here in the studio. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. A new shock to the scientific world and really to all of us. It is about the mysterious extinct human species, Homo naledi. The new discovery suggests that this species may have intentionally buried its dead and carved symbols above the graves on cave walls long before the earliest evidence of burials by modern humans. Working in incredibly tight spaces in the Rising Star Cave System in South Africa, a team of researchers last year made these and many other discoveries about this ancient species. And our next guest was part of that expedition. Here he is describing one of the engravings just moments after he discovered it. I can't believe what we're seeing, and we're seeing scratch marks, uh, uh, sort of pe- what you call petroglyphs, which are in pictures or, or carvings carved in the rock. But look at the scale of these things. Well, I'm so happy that we're joined now by the man you just saw in the tight cave, National Geographic Explorer in Residence and World Renowned. Okay, how do I say this? Paleoanthropologist? Paleoanthropologist. Okay, paleoanthropologist. <laughs> Dr. Lee Berger joins us now. He's the author of this book, by the way, that comes out in August, August. Cave of Bones. It goes, I get PTSD looking at that image. You know, okay. I almost died coming out of that That is very cave. claustrophobic to begin with. But was, how did you almost die? It was, well, the, you, to get in that, you have to go down about a 40-foot shaft that is, uh, gets down to seven and a half inches. No. It probably averages about nine inches Absolutely the entire not. time. Guess how much weight he lost to do it? 55 pounds. Yep. Yeah. Because you wanted to see this so much. I had to test some questions. We had discovered these burials, or we realized we had burials in 2018. We were on this National Geographic expedition. We were down there. I I saw the burials, but I've only ever seen this thing through video. And we had these questions over COVID, and we could not get get them answered. Only 47 humans had ever been in there. And so I decided I needed to get in there and test them. And when I got in there, I started making these discoveries. You know, our our missions were always very focused. Saw those symbols, blew my mind. What do you do? You know what they mean? Uh, And this is a dumb question, but like, how how can you conclude what you think they are? This is not a human species. They have a brain a third the size of ours. It's it's uh, about the size of a chimpanzee's. And they're carving symbols 150,000 years before humans even think of doing that. They, they look familiar to us. Crosses, boxes, triangles, hashtags. <laughs> they don't mean Twitter. <laughs> I know that. And, and, and yet, we may never know what they mean. They, they were made for other Noletti, not for us. Right. But one thing we do know that I, that I really took away from what I read about the work that you've done on this is that what you discovered erases the belief in human exceptionalism because of the size of our brains. You know, we have told this story since for thousands of years. Why are we different? We want to make ourselves different. One of the last things we had is this big brain. That just died 
just like the home and away died, but with this evidence, that died. Why? We are not exceptional. Can you explain that more? Yeah, so, so humans have got this narrative that our big brain supercharged us, made us different. Let's do culture, let's do symbols, music, art, all the things that we like to separate ourselves from the animal kingdom. Of course, animal studies have shown us, you know, that's not true. Whales do incredible things. Corvids, you know, crows are brilliant. But now we know that neither were we exceptional in that brain. The brain doesn't make us whatever it is we are. We now see Homo naledi doing the things that we held as the only thing we had left 250,000 years ago. Your energy and level of energy and passion tells me that you're not by any means done. What's next? <laughs> uh, in terms well, of your research, you know, how, there what is, do you, how do you there move is, this forward? Firstly, we're, we're bringing this to the world. We're gonna engage the entire scientific community in how to test these hypotheses. This is science. It's ongoing. There's a lot more to discover. We're also going to be asking the world, what do we do with this? What do we do with discovering the first non-human species that had our capabilities? This is a special place to them. They took the dead of their kin mm -hmm. into these remote areas and buried them. What should we do? Do we just destroy it in the way we humans tend to? Or do we, you know, take care here? I think it's a special, it's almost our first contact moment, you know, the, the oh, real first yeah. contact yeah. moment. Paleoanthropologist, Paleoanthropologist, Dr. Lee Berger, thank you so much. Well, thank, thank you. Thank you, you for having me. Really fascinating, and congrats on the book. Oh, thank you. Okay, now this. Well, also this morning, the SEC cracking down on the crypto market, suing two of the largest trading platforms. Someone who's become an outspoken critic of the crypto industry knows so much about it. You may know him from the hit TV show, The O.C. That was appointment television for me in college, by the way. But he is brilliant on economics and all of this crypto stuff. Ben McKenzie, live in studio next. The back-to-back -back lawsuits against two of the world's biggest crypto enterprises, they are shaking up the digital currency market. On Tuesday, the SEC sued Coinbase, America's largest crypto exchange, accusing it of acting as an unregistered exchange, broker, and clearinghouse. Just 24 hours earlier, the SEC sued rival platform Binance, accusing it of running an illegal exchange. A Binance spokesperson called the allegations, quote, unjustified, and that the company is being targeted due to its size and name recognition. Coinbase CEO Brian Armstrong tweeted, we're proud to represent the industry in court to finally get some clarity around crypto rules. Some good quotes in those complaints that probably they didn't want public. Bro, joining us now, bro. Bro, 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 joining us now. There's a bro thing there, guys. Is actor Ben McKenzie. You know him, of course, from his starring role on, as Ryan Atwood on the teen drama The O.C., but he's also uh, an outspoken cryptocurrency skeptic. He's testified in front of Congress. I've, we've talked about uh, your... Uh, incredible knowledge about this issue it's and also fluency in it when it comes to economics. His new book is coming out next month. It's called Easy Money, Cryptocurrency, Casino Capitalism, and the Golden Age of Fraud. Um, if I were betting based on, I watched your congressional testimony and some of the things you said, you probably felt this was an inevitability to some degree. Yes. Um, why? Because uh, the cryptocurrency market has heretofore been more or less unregulated. Um, cryptocurrencies are not currencies by any reasonable economic definition. They are more like securities. We have a history of this. Before the 1930s and the 1920s, we had yeah, you know, hundreds, if not thousands, of un unregistered, unlicensed securities with no, no securities laws. Um, the crash of 1929 led to the Great Depression, and millions of Americans lost money. It's ironic, but about a century later, we're effectively revisiting those times. 
these cryptocurrencies, and there are some 20,000 of them, are securities or ought to be under American law. So we're sort of seeing the rubber hitting the road here with cryptocurrency. Right, it's called the Securities and Exchange Commission. But these companies think we're not securities, we're different. And, sure. and therein lies the problem. Yes. I thought it was very interesting yesterday, this interview that Gary Gensler, who's a top cop at the SEC, a big critic of crypto that he gave to CNBC. Here's a clip of it. We don't need more uh, digital currency. We already have digital currency. It's called the U.S. dollar. It's called the euro. It's called the yen. They're all digital right now. We already have digital investments. But the companies, I'll just take Coinbase as an example, push back and say, well, you know, you didn't give us a framework. And by the way, you allowed us to go public. You allowed us to. So what gives now? Okay, so one fun fact, uh, Coinbase went public on April 14th of 2021. Gary Gensler assumed office on April 17th of 2021. He literally wasn't in charge when they went public. But actually, that even misses the bigger point. Anyone is allowed to go public if you uh, file the right paperwork. So the defense that we were allowed to go public is really not a defense. It's certainly not a defense in the court of law. Um, even Coinbase's own disclosures, if you read their filings, say that. Um, so that's a PR move. Um, what we will see is what the courts think of this. And that, of course, is an open question at this point. You know, how do we classify securities? The law is pretty clear. It's, uh, securities are defined under what's called the Howey test, which has four parts. An investment of money in a common enterprise with the expectation of profit to be derived from the efforts of others. These securities, other than Bitcoin, Bitcoin has been classified as a commodity. That's a whole other story. These other cryptos, they look a heck of a lot like securities to me. I love the regulatory turf match elements. There's obviously lawmakers trying to set up a legal framework mechanism of this as well, which has been a cluster. You've been involved in that as well. Um, the most fascinating thing, and look, I understand that the SEC officials that bring these cases do this intentionally, where they plug in really damning quotes, yeah. including the one which was basically a top official being like, we are literally operating an unregulated exchange inside this country at this point in time. That's right. Bro. We are That's running a effing yes. unlicensed securities exchange in the United States, bro. So they knew. The bro is the it's really chef's, chef's kiss. And to be clear, the... they could have edited that out. They could have dropped it. And props <laughs> to the legal operations. <laughs> That's true. It was like, no, we're good. <laughs> no, we're going to let no. that one go. My other favorite is from the CFTC lawsuit against, the, against Binance. Well, of course, CFTC yeah. is also suing Binance. In that one, there's a quote from one of their officials, one of the uh, Binance guys. It says, relating to their Russian customers, Come on, like, come on, they are here for crime. Oh my God. Seems kind of it's to, like game It's away. bad to do the criming if you're going to talk about the criming. I feel like if we learn nothing else from 08, you got to watch the wire, guys. Don't write it down. <laughs> Don't write it down. But <laughs> well, what about for regular folks that are waking up this morning or woke up to these headlines yesterday and they're like, oh my God. What does this mean for me? Matt Levine, Bloomberg columnist who we all love and admire, wrote a decent rule of thumb is that all cryptocurrency exchanges are doing crimes. And if you're lucky, your exchange is only doing a process crime. Yep, that's right. Hopefully you're only facilitating the deeper crimes that other people are committing. But um, you might be doing more than that. So, yeah, I mean, look, I feel terrible for the people that have lost money. That's why I'm writing the book. That's why I wrote the book. I wrote the book for the 40 million Americans who bought cryptocurrency, the vast majority of whom have lost money. If cryptocurrency resembles a multi-level marketing scheme, which I argue in the book that it does, studies of MLMs have shown that 99% of people lose money 
and 1% goes to the top. Who is the top in crypto? It's the exchanges, it's the whales, it's the VC firms, and it's the high-frequency trading firms that are able to manipulate the prices of these currencies. Could I ask, crypto folks uh, are not subtle (laughs) with their views. What's it been like to be in your position? We only got about 20 seconds left. Sure. Uh, I'll just say that Twitter has a mute button, which is my favorite thing in the world. (laughs) I wish the mute button existed in real life. People can just scream at you. They have no idea you can't hear them. Um, I'm going to try that. But Mackenzie, thank you very much. And I should also note, Brian Armstrong, head of Coinbase, we'd love to have any of these folks join us on the program. Have this dialogue with them. They're always welcome. You are always welcome, Ben. Thank you very much. CNN This Morning continues right now. Different times call for different leadership. Today, our party and our country need a leader that will appeal, as Lincoln said, to the better angels of our nature. Today, before God and my family, I'm announcing I'm running for president of the United States. Good morning, everyone. It's a big day if you want to be president. I'm still I'm Are you waiting to in? check my text messages from my wife, knowing that I talked to Ben McKenzie. My ben husband McKenzie. already texted, yeah. and this I know it's like, about uh, the crypto I'm like, no, no, we were segment. talking about crypto. She's like, wait, really? Oh, yes. Yes, and we were. Watch the segment. It was really good. But <laughs> it was to your good. point, it is a huge day, yes. week, month, 2024. It's like who wants to be a millionaire? Who wants to be a president? Now. Right? Stop in. Mike Pence does. He's in. He jumped in this morning. Chris Christie has jumped in. Doug Burgum, North Dakota. A lot of folks. This is going to be a historic battle. When we talk about Pence versus his former boss, Donald Trump, Pence's brother, is going to join us live in just a few minutes on the big announcement. And the PGA Tour, shocking the world of golf, shocking the world to some degree, the commissioner announcing a surprise partnership with Saudi-backed Live Golf. He was reportedly blasted as a hypocrite in a heated meeting with his own players. And a live look at New York City. If you're waking up in the Midwest or the Northeast, it might look like this. This is smoke pouring down from the Canadian wildfires. Air quality plunging across the Northeast and the Midwest. How long is this going to last? Where is it headed? This morning of this hour of CNN This Morning starts right now. All right, here's where we begin this morning. Big developments in the special counsel's investigation of former President Donald Trump. We are now learning former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows has testified before that federal grand jury. Meadows could be a key witness on multiple fronts. And today, another witness is expected to appear before grand jury in Miami. It remains unclear why the special counsel is using a grand jury in southern Florida after months of relying on grand juries in Washington, D.C., all to help gather evidence and testimony in that classified documents case. Here to explain it all to us, CNN senior justice correspondent Evan Perez Evan, what do we know about today's witnesses and what's going on in Florida? Well, you know, this is just exactly what we need in this story, which is another mystery, right? Uh, We know that this witness, uh, any moment now, is going to be walking into the federal courthouse there in Miami. And as you pointed out, you know, the prosecutors here, the uh, Jack Smith, uh, the special counsel Jack Smith's investigators, have been getting evidence, uh, taking uh, testimony and getting uh, gathering evidence using a grand jury here in Washington for months. And then suddenly, recently, they've taken uh, taken, uh, testimony from witnesses there in Miami. And so 
We don't know exactly why. We know that at least one more witness uh, beyond today is expected to appear down there. It is possible that prosecutors simply want to, uh, there, are, there, are, there are certain crimes that they're investigating that they believe uh, could be brought down there better than in Washington. Again, that's one of the mysteries that has emerged from all of this. Uh, Ellie Honig, who's going to be with us in just a minute, um, said last hour, essentially, Mark Meadows could be the most important witness in all of this, potentially even in both probes, because he's the guy who is next to the guy yeah. who all the questions are about all the time. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think I think it's very clear that he is the most important witnesses. Again, he was the, uh, the former chief of staff to the former president. He was there for everything. Uh, he was there when the former president was trying to figure out how to remain in power despite losing the, the election. He was involved in some of those phone calls, pressuring state officials uh, to uh, to try to set aside their election results. Uh, you have his emails that the January 6th committee showed the world where he discusses the plan that they ended up following, which was to try to send alternate electors and try to figure out a way, again, for the former president to remain in power. And on the documents investigation, again, he, uh, because he was chief of staff, he was involved in helping to pack up uh, essentially prepare the, the White House uh, for the departure of the former president, what uh, documents needed to be returned to the agencies. He was also a, a records custodian, uh, someone who was in touch with the Nar National Archives uh, when they were trying to retrieve the documents that the former t president took with him. Uh, we know also, guys, that he has his own uh, you know, criminal exposure, essentially legal exposure, uh, because when he was uh, subpoenaed to testify in Georgia, he pleaded the fifth. And so all of that has led to a lot of speculation in the Trump uh, world, certainly people close to the former president, that, Mike, that uh, Mark Meadows perhaps has been providing some kind of cooperation. I'll read you just a part of uh, the, the, the statement that we got from George Terwilliger, his very capable uh, lawyer, uh, who says that uh, Mr. Meadows has maintained a commitment to tell the truth wherever he has a legal uh, obligation to do so. Again, that, those are words that I think a lot of people around the former president have been fearing because they suspected, again, that Mark Meadows has been cooperating with investigators. And, and Evan, just for clarity, because I know, I know you've got a new reporting on this, the testimony was for both cases, right? Do we, do we think that that's the case at this point? That's right. Uh, we now have from a, from a source who's told uh, our Jamie Gangel that, uh, that Mark Meadows was asked questions about both investigations. Which would make sense because they're both happening. Evan Perez, right. great reporting as always, my friend. Yeah, a lot of clarity Thanks. as always. Evan Perez. It's really important reporting from Evan and, yeah. and from Jamie Gangel because now we know that Mark Meadows has testified in both cases before special counsel Jack Smith. It appears that Smith is getting closer to making a decision in recommending charges on the former president. Uh, questions about which front that would be on or both, if they are recommended. Dozens of people have testified before these grand juries. Let's take a look at a few of the key witnesses with the man I just brought up, our senior legal analyst, Ellie Honig, with all of it. So let's start, Ellie, with Trump attorney Evan Corcoran, who not only wrote a lot, he recorded a lot after these meetings and all of those recordings, audio recordings are now in the hands of Jack Smith. Yeah, this is a really unusual scenario, Poppy. So Evan Corcoran is an attorney. He was part of Donald Trump's legal team. Now, a year ago in June of 2022, DOJ sent a subpoena to Trump's legal team saying, we need you to give us all classified and sensitive government documents that you may have at Mar-a-Lago. Now, Corcoran was directed by people within the Trump team 
to this very important storage room where there were boxes of documents. Corcoran goes through those documents, pulls out 38 documents, hands them over to DOJ with a sworn certification that says, we did our due diligence, this is all we have at Mar-a-Lago. Turned out, two months later, DOJ does a search and finds over 100 more classified documents. So prosecutors are going to be asking about that. And Poppy, as you noted, DOJ actually has Evan Corcoran's written notes and his recorded notes, even though he was the attorney for Donald Trump. Normally, that would be protected, of course, by the attorney-client privilege. But in this case, prosecutors were able to pierce through that privilege using something called the crime fraud exception, which means prosecutors convinced the judge that there could be evidence of a crime, not necessarily that Evan Corcoran himself participated in, but there could be evidence of a crime in those notes. It's very rare that prosecutors get them. Can I swing... Back over to the storage room for a second. Yeah. Can you remind us who was actually moving the boxes uh, yes. out at that key moment? Yes. So this is, again, the key storage room. Walt Nauta. So Mr. Nauta was Donald Trump's valet, his body person. And Walt Nauta originally told investigators that, well, I don't know anything about classified documents. Turned out later he sort of took that back and said, actually, because he was caught on surveillance, I did move boxes into and out of this storage room. We know that in part because of surveillance video. Also, helping out Mr. Nauta was an unknown maintenance worker whose surveillance video captures also moving boxes into and out of that storage room. Also, that same maintenance worker is the person who our reporting tells us drained this pool. The water then ran into a room that housed the servers that housed the surveillance video. Now, we don't know. Prosecutors surely are trying to figure out whether that was on purpose or whether that was unintentional. So that is the unknown maintenance worker. And then finally, we know that Matthew Calamari, senior and junior, who were in charge of security for the Trump organization, they too have testified about the surveillance video. As the heads of security, they were in charge of maintaining it. And we have reporting that they were asked about how surveillance video was maintained, whether any of it might be missing, whether any of it could have been tampered with. So we're getting a sense now, and I guess given Evan Perez's very interesting new reporting, we can add Mark Meadows to this list, but we're getting a sense of what the witness list might look like. Ellie, so grateful we have you, especially on days like today. Anytime. Thanks, Thanks for making it digestible. And joining us now is former Trump attorney Timothy Parlatori. Evan just reported that Mark Meadows has been asked about both cases, classified documents and January 6th. What would he have testified about your former client? I guess my big question is, are you concerned that Mark Meadows testifying to a grand jury or would his current legal team be concerned uh, given the scale of his knowledge about the former president and his time? Well, you know, certainly when I was a member of the team, I wasn't really concerned about any of these witnesses because, you know, while we certainly did fight issues of privilege to make sure that uh, those things are maintained, you know, our position always was that as long as everybody tells the truth, that is the best defense. So, uh, you know, if Mark Meadows went in and he told everything as it actually happened, you know, I think that that's going to be perfectly fine. Uh, can I just quickly follow up on that? I mean, he, between text messages that we've all seen because they were revealed by the committee, between mm -hmm. staffers that have been around him, um, I think there were a lot of questions uh, raised about whether or not on several fronts Mark Meadows had information or was aware of information or was in rooms tied to information that would present potential legal jeopardy, not just for him, but also potentially for the, the former president as well. You're saying that explicitly not possible. There's absolutely nothing Mark Meadows could have said or known about that would be problematic. 
No, what I'm saying is based on the information that I have, if he goes in and tells the truth, as his lawyer said that he did, uh, then he's going to be able to place all these things in context so that people can understand that there is a, an explanation for these things uh, that is very different from what the public narrative has been. How do you explain defying a subpoena and keeping classified documents? Uh, well, who who defied a subpoena? You know the the More information related to this case. As a, no, sure. I, well, first of all, if we look at the actual evidence in this case, as opposed to some of the leaked public narrative, what happened was a subpoena was issued. A certain period of time was given for compliance, although additional time was requested. The additional time needed was not granted. Uh, Evan did the search that he was able to within the period of time that he was given. He gave a certification saying, this is what I found during that diligent search, uh, actually signed by Christina Bob. And then, whereas normally you would have conversations with DOJ about continuing uh, searches, you know, they would, you know, anytime I talk with the U.S. attorney, they would say, okay, give us what you can within that period of time, but we'd like you to keep searching. That didn't happen here. Jay Brandt kind of cut it off and said, no, do everything by this date. He gave everything that he could by that date. And then there was no continued conversations, as there would normally be with any professional U.S. attorney's office. And so any of the subsequent searches that were after the time period in which Evan had, you know, to search, a lot of that could have been avoided through, you know, normal uh, interactions. Uh, you know, this is something that we do all the time. You know, Ellie Honig and I had a case years ago. We've worked well together on these types of things. That is not how this DOJ case uh, team handled it. And so they do create this, um, this situation where you can then say that they ignored a subpoena. But that's not the reality when you get down to the brass tacks of the actual facts here. I want to play for you, given that point, and I think this has been a consistent point you and I think some of the current legal team have made, um, some sound from the former Attorney General, Bill Barr, uh, obviously in the Trump administration. Take a listen. I think over time people will see that this is not a case of the Department of Justice, you know, conducting a witch hunt. In fact, they approached this very delicately and with deference to the president. And this would have gone nowhere had the president just returned the documents. But he jerked them around for a year and a half. And the question is, did he deceive them? And I just I think and I think that's the dissonance here between what you're laying out, what the legal team has been laying out. Uh, Bill Barr is not a partisan. He is not in terms of somebody who would want to necessarily take down the former president. Um, what's your response to that? Sure. And th that's a great word to use dissonance, because there is with this case and with many cases, a dissonance between what has actually happened, what the full facts are, and what selected portions get put out into the public sphere. And so Bill Barr is making a comment there based on the information that he's been provided, which is definitely not everything. It's certainly not in context. And it's one of the reasons why um, why I've been willing to come out at this time. Yeah, I'm, I'm a former member of the team. I'm not here to defend the president. I am here to answer questions about you know what the actual facts are to the extent I can say it legally and what the actual law is as opposed to a lot of the uh, spin that's been going on. Uh, we've learned this week that there is a second grand jury in these probes in Florida. Uh, there are venue questions, right? This is legally a part of a alleged crime yeah. has to have happened where a grand jury is convened. 
What are your thoughts on the fact that and a Correct. key witness we know is going before this grand jury today, I right. believe? Right. I understand that Florida may be a more mm -hmm. desirable jury pool for the president's legal team. Correct me if I'm wrong. But what do you make of the fact that there is now this second grand jury in Florida? Well, you know, I, I would actually kind of put it in the inverse that D.C. is a more favorable jury pool for what Jack Smith wants. And, you know, they started that investigation in D.C. They've had all these witnesses before the D.C. grand jury without ever really examining is there venue in D.C. And so I interpret this latest action as them getting down to the end, trying to make a decision and saying, you know, uh oh, we totally forgot one of these threshold issues. Uh, and, you know, now they have to kind of go back and fix a lot of the mistakes that they made. You know, if, if this was something where they were going to do a grand jury investigation and ultimately just issue a report as opposed to an indictment, then there's no court in which we would be challenging the sufficiency of any, um, you know, venue or, you know, whether a warrant was properly issued or anything like that. And if they are actually considering now, you know, to go the indictment route, then they have to go back and fix a lot of the mistakes. And you know, don't forget, this is an investigation that started before Jack Smith got involved. The National Security Division, as opposed to the Criminal Division, started this way back in May of last year. And so now that they have more of the professional, experienced criminal prosecutors on the case, they have to go back and kind of fix these things. Can I just briefly ask you, we don't have a lot of time left, but did you guys ever raise while you were there issues of venue to the special counsel's team to Jack Smith at any point? Uh, unfortunately, your question presupposes that we had uh, actual conversations with that team. It was not something that they were you know, really open to having conversations about anything with us, at least while I was there. It's a no? <laughs> no. <laughs> Fair point. No, unfortunately. I would have liked to. But. Yeah. Well, those conversations are happening now, or at least happened yeah. once. Timothy Paltori, thanks so much for your time. We appreciate Great it. Great to have you. So, Really this morning, it was supposed to be a very sunny week all week, but this morning the sky is brown, very hazy. Heavy smoke from Canadian wildfires is blanketing cities across the Northeast and the Midwest. Right now, the city's air quality here in Manhattan among the worst in the entire world. Tens of millions of Americans from Minnesota to New England all the way down to North Carolina are at risk of breathing unhealthy air today. Forecasters say we could see more and more rounds of smoke through tomorrow at least as wildfires continue to rage out of control in Quebec and across Canada. Athena Jones is live in Manhattan wearing a mask as you know, I think a lot of people will be today as they commute to and from work. Hi, good morning, Poppy. That's right. We've seen some people out on the street already wearing masks while they're walking their dogs. One guy was even wearing a mask while running. But we're also seeing a lot of people doing their usual morning routine out here along the West Side Highway, along the Hudson River, uh, going for a run. We saw a sightseeing boat take off a little while further, a little while ago. In the distance, that's Jersey City. You can usually easily make out the Statue of Liberty. You can maybe just now begin to see it. Uh, but again, this is a, a, a serious issue that the New York, uh, New York Mayor Eric Adams is going to be talking about in a couple of hours in terms of what we can expect here. Uh, but we know that schools, public schools here in New York are going to be open, but all outdoor activity has been canceled because of the danger of this smoke. We also saw uh, several school districts in central New York north of here, so closer to Quebec, where these fires are burning, also canceling outdoor activity. And what, what this really comes down to is that 
this air quality index level is unhealthy for, for sensitive people. So young children, adult, uh, elderly, uh, people who are pregnant, those who have respiratory issues or cardiovascular issues. And that is because wildfire smoke, just like burning fossil fuels and other things, has a lot of very, very tiny, dangerous pollutants that can really get into the lungs and cause major health problems. Poppy? Athena, thank you for that update. I think a lot of folks are listening as they get ready to leave for work, get their yeah. kids to school. Activities, school, all that. a lot of questions today. All right, also this morning, protests turning violent outside an L.A. school district meeting as administrators discussed recognizing June as Pride Month. That's ahead. Also, former Vice President Mike Pence making it official, entering the race for the White House this morning, pitting himself directly against his former boss, Donald Trump. Well, Mike Pence's brother, Indiana Congressman Greg Pence, is here to join us next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Every time our nation has produced leadership that has called upon this country to do hard things, the American people have always risen to the challenge. And we will again. We just need government as good as our people to do it. I believe in the American people, and I have faith. God is not done with America yet. And together, we can bring this country back. And the best days for the greatest nation on earth are yet to come. That is the announcement from former Vice President Mike Pence announcing his run for the White House in a new video released early this morning, setting up quite a battle with his former boss, Donald Trump, notably missing from the video any images of former President Trump. U.S. history has only had a handful of instances where a vice president is running against a president. Pence will hold a rally in Des Moines, Iowa, where later today his campaign says he'll lean on his conservative and religious ideals. He'll also headline a CNN town hall tonight moderated by our friend Dana Bash. Joining us now from Des Moines is Mike Pence's brother, Republican Congressman Greg Pence of Indiana. Nice to have you. Thanks for coming on CNN this morning. Morning, Poppy and Phil. Your brother has said a lot of nice things about the former president, a lot of them. Is that going to change now that he's running against him? Will he directly take on Trump? We know Chris Christie will. Will your brother? Well, Poppy, I'm not going to spoil the evening on your, his announcement this afternoon and then tonight, right? Ooh. But, I, but I will say, you know, I, I, I have to be nice to him today. Uh, I'm his older brother, as most people know, and today he's turned 64 years old. So I, I'm going to wish him happy birthday and let him speak for himself. But in all seriousness, that's not a no. <laughs> you, are you leaving that intentionally ambiguous? I honestly don't know what he's going to say. Mm. You know, that's that's a benefit of uh, of being the older brother. You don't have to pay attention to your younger brothers. Um, somewhat tied to that, uh, you know, slightly more serious note. One of the questions that I've long had: um, you voted uh, to reject the electors in one state back on January sixth. Your brother has been very clear about his belief and views of his legal authority, which I think have been backed up by lawyers on both sides of the aisle. Do you feel like you made the wrong decision there? Or do you guys still disagree about his role on January 6th and what he was either able to do or should have done? Well, I, you know, it's interesting, Phil. I get, that, I get that question a lot. My constitutional duty, along with the other 434 people, was to vote when a vote was called for. As a presider of the, uh, of the joint session between the House and the Senate, 
he did what he was supposed to do. So there was no disagreement between us in my vote, yes or no, or how I voted. And the fact, of course, he didn't vote. He did what he was supposed well, to do. Well, you did vote to object to Pennsylvania's presidential electoral college result in 2020. I think, you know, to build on what Phil's getting to here, your brother said last year he was speaking to the Federalist Society in Florida, and he said it is, quote, un-American to suggest that one person could have decided the outcome. He said, under the Constitution, I had no right to change the outcome of our election. Do you believe that is accurate? Do you believe or do you believe your brother did have that power? Well, today, since it's his birthday, let's keep it about Michael, my brother, okay? Uh, I think he was referring to his position as vice president yeah. of the United States and whether he had the authority to do anything different than what he did. And his actions speak uh, louder than words. He did what he said. So since it is your brother's birthday, are you going to endorse your brother when he announces his candidacy for president? I, I, I absolutely am. I'm, I'm actually going to speak uh, this afternoon uh, around noon in support of my brother. After all, my mother's watching right now, so I have to be supportive. One of the things that I think is going to be really interesting to watch here is how your brother convinces a majority of Republicans who are standing behind Trump, many of whom believe Trump when he says the 2020 election you know, was stolen from him, that is just not factually true. How, how does Mike Pence convince them all that they're wrong? Well, I think my brother, my brother was my congressman for 12 years. He was my governor for four, and of course, all of our vice president for four. Uh, he, I think he'll talk about the future. Uh, I think he always has talked about the future, and I think that's what you'll hear today. You know, in the good book, it says, if they're not against us, they're for us. I think my brother's for the future. He, he's not going to look back. He's going to talk about what his vision for America is going forward. And I think he's the right man at the right time in this country. Come back. Wish we had a little bit more time with you, Congressman. I feel like you have the Great easy man. way out that you could just endorse your brother instead of trying to weigh the other dozen candidates. This is an unfair <laughs> advantage that you have in this particular I, race. I am endorsing him. No, I know. I, that's unfair. It's an easy him. way out because you don't have to try and figure it out through the other <laughs> dynamics of the primary. So yeah, but I, I know him very well. I no, know I, him very I, well. I appreciate it, sir. Well, we appreciate it. He's the time. right guy. We, thank you very much, sir. Okay, thank yeah, you. Please do come back. All right. Um, tune in tonight. Dana Bash moderates a CNN Republican town hall that may be even uh, more exciting than we were expecting, given what Mike Pence's brother just said. That's 9 p.m. Eastern tonight. I'm going to leave you in great hands with my buddy, Sarah Seidner, who is here early so I can go Oof, watch my son graduate from preschool. Thank Yay. you, my friend. Thank you, my friend. I'll see you tomorrow. Is this a personal thing? No. Are God. you sure? Have fun. It Enjoy. Enjoy the graduation. <laughs> Thank These you. Cool okay, got to make it. All right, now to some more news. Golfers and fans around the world reacting to the PGA Tour's announcement, a surprise announcement, that is partnering with the Saudi-backed Live Golf League. What led up to that shocking decision? Plus, a mass shooting after a high school graduation ceremony leaves two dead, including an 18-year-old graduate. A live report ahead.
And we're back. This morning, new video shows fights breaking out at a protest in Glendale, California. That's in Los Angeles County on Tuesday, outside a school district meeting to debate recognizing Pride Month. Tension boiled over when the 200 demonstrators were debating gender and sexual identity studies, which was not, by the way, on the agenda for the meeting. Around 50 officers ended up showing up on the scene. They could not de-escalate the crowd. In the end, at least three people were arrested. School administrators point out that many of the protesters didn't even have students in the district. Graduates and their families left running for their lives after a gunman opened fire outside a commencement ceremony in Richmond, Virginia. The ceremony had just ended when police say a 19-year-old gunman opened fire yesterday. Two people were killed, including a teen who had just graduated. At least five others were injured. A witness described what he saw. Just everybody started running and I pushed her down on the ground. We got down on the ground and um, it's just chaos from there. You just kept hurting shots. It was like eight, nine, ten shots. Now, the attack is one of at least 279 mass shootings in the U.S. this year. CNN's Brian Todd is with us live from Richmond. And Brian, what do we know about the suspect at this point? Well, Phil, we do know from police that the suspect is a 19-year-old male. I'm going to tell you more about him in just a second. You heard that witness talk about chaos. That is what police are telling us unfolded at the scene, too. And I'll take you through it right here. Police telling us that the graduation ceremonies were taking place right inside there at the Altria Theater. When the ceremonies were finished, at least one of the ceremonies was finished, people started spilling out, of course, and into Monroe Park here, taking pictures, doing the usual stuff that you do after graduation. We're told by police that there were hundreds of people here here in Monroe Park when the shots uh, started to ring out. And from amateur video that we observed, we did see two of the victims being treated right around here. One of them was laid out right there. Another one was in this area here. Of course, we now know that two of the victims died. Five others were injured. At least one of them suffered life-threatening injuries. The interim police chief, Rick Edwards, did talk about that suspect that you mentioned. Here's what the chief had to say about that. We have another individual who is in custody who is 19 years old, who we believe was involved in the shooting. We plan on seeking charges for second degree murder times two for that individual, with more potential charges to follow. We think the, the suspect knew at least one of the victims. The subject is, the 19 year old suspect is a male, um, and I'm unclear if he's currently a student. And some other detail that the police chief gave uh, last night was that the suspect actually fled on foot and that security officers, not police, but security officers from Virginia Commonwealth University, which is not far away from here, they were the ones who actually apprehended the suspect and took him into custody. Not Richmond police, but several uh, police agencies did respond immediately to the shooting. That suspect fleeing on foot, then taken into custody by university security officers. To give you a sense, Phil, of, uh, of you know, Another sense of the chaos that unfolded here. Police say a nine-year-old girl was struck by a car in the mayhem that occurred. Luckily, she has non-life-threatening injuries. Phil? Brian Todd, thanks so much. Great reporting. Saudi Arabia clinching a major victory in the world of sports as the PGA Tour agrees to partner with Live Golf. How players and fans are reacting and why 9-11 families are seething Golf, though, not the only sport the Saudis are looking to take on, Bob Costas. Yes, the man, the myth, the legend is here in studio to discuss.
But we've just gotten this into CNN. Taylor Budowich, who has worked as a spokesman for Donald Trump, has arrived at the federal courthouse in Miami to appear before a grand jury as part of special counsel Jack Smith's investigation into the former president's handling of classified documents. Now, it remains unclear why the special counsel is using a grand jury in southern Florida after months of relying on grand juries in Washington, D.C. Those juries used to help gather information and evidence and witness testimony in this case. We'll keep you posted as we learn more developments. All right. I hate to say the word shocking, but this actually is. It is a shocking reversal as the PGA announces it will now be partnering with Saudi-backed Live Golf in a move that surprised even some PGA golfers themselves. Colin Murakawa tweeted, I love finding out morning news on Twitter. Obvious sarcasm. Just last year, the PGA's commissioner, Jay Monahan, criticized golfers who left the tour to pursue bigger paychecks with Live Golf, reminding everyone of Saudi Arabia's ties to the terrorist attacks of September 11th. Listen. I think you'd have to be living under a rock to not know that there are significant implications. And as it relates to the families of 9-11, I have two families that are close to me that lost loved ones. And so my heart goes out to them. And I would ask, you know, any player that has left or any player that would ever consider leaving, have you ever had to apologize for being a member of the PGA Tour? And here's where the message shifts. Same individual, same issue yesterday. I recognize that people are going to call me a hypocrite. And anytime I've said anything, I said it with the information I had at that moment. And I said, I said it based on someone that's trying to compete for the PGA Tour and our players. Um, and so I accept those criticisms. But circumstances do change. Well, a group representing the families of September 11th victims is slamming the PGA's move, saying in a statement, the PGA and Monaghan appear to have become just more paid Saudi shills, taking billions of dollars to cleanse the Saudi reputation. Joining us now to discuss all of this, CNN contributor and veteran sports broadcaster Bob Costas. Um, So we've been stunned and I've been following every turn of this. Uh, Can you tell people, just brought it out, what actually happened here? I'm not even sure I understand yet. Well, I, I think it dawned on the PGA and Jay Monahan as the head of the organization that they couldn't wait the Saudis out. The Saudis have a bottomless well of money, some $600 billion. So even though the PGA Tour upped the prize money, they put in some special events, they made some concessions to those who didn't defect and stayed, they figured out that in the long run, this isn't going to work. I think they hoped that... Uh, when the exemptions ran out from those who automatically were in the majors, which is what most of the public pays attention to, like Brooks Kepka, a live golfer, allowed, as Phil Mickelson was, yeah. to play in the majors, the Masters, whatever, and uh, Kepka won the PGA recently, that there was no way to wait these guys out. So instead, they merge. The difference is this isn't the NFL and the AFL, the NBA and the ABA, because there's no moral objection. Those were straight business deals. We don't have to go through chapter and verse about the moral objections here. And it isn't just 9-11. It's Jamal Khashoggi. And it's the ongoing human rights abuses within Saudi Arabia itself. We are going to talk a little bit more, though, about the 9-11 families. 
because, in part, Brian DeChambeau, who is a former PGA golfer who left that tour to go to live for what was reported to be somewhere in the $100 million range, uh, he was asked about what he says to the 9-11 families. Let me let you listen. I don't know exactly what they're feeling. I can't ever know what they feel, but I have a huge amount of respect for their position and what they believe, Um, nor do I ever want anything like that to ever occur again. I think as we move forward from that, we've got to look towards the pathway to peace, uh, especially in forgiveness, especially if we're trying to mend the world and make it a better place. Uh, I think this is what they're trying to accomplish, Liv is trying to accomplish, Um, the PIF is trying to accomplish, we're all trying to accomplish is a better world for everybody. Peace forgiveness. Mm-hmm. Is that what this is about? Or is this just about money? Yeah. Uh, you know, Bryson is a golfer. He can't be expected necessarily to have uh, the best grasp on all the dynamics of this. But here's where peace comes in. Litigation on both sides. Mm-hmm. There were suits and countersuits. Now the litigation goes away. Uh, who knows what the PGA may have feared in terms of what might have come out in discovery. Mm-hmm. They have nonprofit tax exempt status. Mm-hmm. That may be imperiled by the publicity surrounding this as it is. Maybe Congress will look into it. But certainly they didn't want to risk that ongoing litigation. And so now they'll dance with the devil, I guess. Can I ask on the morality issue? Like, the thing that bothered me is just the, one, the rank hypocrisy from the PGA. Yeah. And two, the fact, and I think the 9-11 families pointed this out, that they leveraged them. There's no question. Like, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. It's just a reality. If I, there are plenty of lobbyists on Capitol Hill that would give me this pitch. Yeah. completely tethered to that, who now have to do a complete 180. Anthony Blinken, the U.S. Secretary of State, is in Riyadh right now. The yeah. U.S. government works with and considers an ally as Saudi Arabia. Why should sports have to require some level of moral purity? Or- I think it's because of the visibility. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the, the Saudi regime, the private investment fund, is invested elsewhere. Uber and other U.S. companies and companies around the world. But the reason you get in bed with sports is because of the general good feeling that sports generates. Nobody knows the names of the Uber people, but they know Phil Mickelson. They know Brooks Kepka and Bryson DeChambeau, and they know that Tiger Woods and Rory McIlroy wouldn't go. And you're right that they did leverage, uh, from the standpoint of public opinion and sentiment, they did leverage the 9-11 families and the whole issue, and then that issue was swept away. Yeah, it's fascinating. At least, at least for them. For them. And it's, it's happening in soccer, too. Kareem Benzema just signed with the Saudi team. I mean, the scale um, is something else. Owning, putting money into more. They're looking yeah. for bigger yeah. teams. Money. Right. Thanks right. so Thank much. You. Appreciate yeah, it. Money over morality, as some have put it. It's, it's, it's a pretty good through line throughout history to some degree. All right. Happening today, hundreds of thousands of UPS workers are about to decide whether to go on strike. What is at stake and what it could mean for you and for businesses? And a live look over a hazy New York City, the smoke from those Canadian wildfires blanketing portions of the Northeast, how long it'll last, more headed next. Hundreds of thousands of UPS workers are now voting on whether to authorize a strike that would bring the company's deliveries to a grinding halt. The union representing UPS workers is currently negotiating a new contract with the company. CNN's Vanessa Yurkevich is here. Um, So if this happens, it's not just about consumers and us not getting our packages. It's about businesses as well. This is a this could be a huge 
thing. Huge economic impact. 6% of U.S. GDP moves by UPS trucks. So this voting is underway this week. Results announced on June 16th. I just want to be clear for viewers, though. This doesn't mean a strike will happen. This is largely procedural. These strike authorization votes happen all the time. But basically, it gives the union power if the union members vote yes on a strike. And it's important to note the impact would be widespread. We're talking about everyday Americans, especially in rural areas who rely on UPS, businesses, factories, newsrooms, getting our pieces of paper uh, that we need every day. But what is at the heart of the negotiations for the union is better pay, Uh, better benefits, but also simple things like air conditioning in UPS trucks. They say it's a health hazard for many of their drivers if they don't have air conditioning. We know that the two sides are negotiating this week, so that is good news. UPS is saying that they are committed to getting a deal before that August uh, 1st deadline. But here's the thing. If there is a strike, U.S. Postal Service FedEx cannot pick up the slack. They don't have the capacity to move that that kind of volume. And the last strike we saw with UPS was in 1997. That was about half the workforce, though, that exists today. So we're talking about double the amount of people that would be on strike and likely double the amount of volume of packages that needs to be moved. We are all online shoppers. That is how we're getting the m- most of our stuff. This would be very detrimental to the economy. Yeah, catastrophic in some ways. Six yeah. percent of the economy huge relies number. on this. Is a huge number. number. Thank you so much, Vanessa UK, Rich. Appreciate it. Um, thank you for coming in. I love that <laughs> they decided to be like, hey, hey, the Washington guy needs some adult supervision, so we're going to have Sarah Seidner come in while Poppy goes to graduation. They made a bad choice. Well, I appreciated it because I like hanging out with you. <laughs> Sarah's going to leave. We loved having her. Two more Republican candidates jumping into the president's race in the last 14 hours. Harry Inton is here. Are, wait, are you my new supervisor now? He's going to have the morning number. Yeah. Oh, God. Here we go. Uh, you need supervision. <laughs> this is terrible. So we've got Pence. We've got Christie. Soon, North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum. They've all thrown their hats and their names into the 2024 <laughs> race for president. Crushing the prompter read. Joining us now is CNN senior data uh, analyst, Harry Anton, reporter, analyst, always crushes prompter reads. You have the number of the day, the morning number. Tell me what it is. Tell me your story. Tell me your story. This morning's number is 10, because that's now the number of Republicans running for president if Doug Burgum announces today, as expected. And I want to give you an idea that this is a bigger primary field than I think I expected. Why? Because I want to look at the size of primary fields when the early polling leader is polling at 50 percent plus. We got 10 up here. If we look at the prior years, look at that. 2016 Dems, it was just six. 2000 Dems, it was just two. So this is a very large field. Now, Phil, let's talk about the candidates who are just entering the race this week. Mike Pence, Chris Christie, Doug Burgum. Trump leads the GOP field at 54 percent. Look at where these folks are. Pence is just at 4%. Christie is at just 1%. Burgum is just at 1%. So you might be asking yourself, can these candidates make a comeback, right, given that they're 50 points behind the leader? So let's take a look through history. Nominees who trailed by the most in the early primary polls. How far back were they, but they still went on to win the nomination? George McGovern, back in 1972, was 28 points back. Jimmy Carter was 18 points back. Barack Obama was 15 points back. So the idea that a candidate would come back from being down 50 points just really doesn't line up with history. But hey, history may be made to be broken. 
The other little thing I'll note is just candidates announcing the latest primary winners entered the race. Bill Clinton was the latest August 16th. Ronald Reagan, we're already past this point at May 18th. So the fact is, it's very late to get in if, in fact, you want to be you're not the party's nominee for president. We got all your slides, and I appreciate that. I appreciate you. I appreciate the number. I appreciate you looking at me oh, when you talk to me. Harry Anton, thanks so much. Thank you. Good news for everybody. More TV. CNN's News Central starts right now. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.